The suspect of the Highland Park July 4th shooting has been charged with seven counts of first-degree murder. Prosecutors say the gun he used was a Smith & Wesson MP15 semi-automatic. State police had approved the suspect's firearms ID, even though months earlier he had threatened to kill himself and his family. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story coming up. Also, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has been instructive for other valuable nations, vulnerable ones, that is, including Taiwan. We are taking the war in Ukraine into a very serious uh, internal discussions. Coming up, how Taiwan is preparing for a possible invasion by China by looking to Ukraine. And the 2022 midterm elections mark the first time some members of Generation Z will be old enough to run for Congress. We believe that we are prepared to be in the rooms, uh, to be the voice for our communities. It's 4.01. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The alleged gunman behind the mass shooting at a 4th of July parade in a Chicago suburb might have carried out a deadly attack in Madison, Wisconsin, as well had there been time to plan. That's what Illinois investigators say they suspect from evidence they've been gathering since the attack in Highland Park killed seven people and wounded dozens of others. NPR's Becky Sullivan says Robert Cremo III made his first court appearance today by Zoom. In a court hearing, prosecutors laid out some of the voluminous evidence they say they've collected on the shooting, including eyewitness accounts, cell phone videos, physical evidence from the gun, and a voluntary statement given by Robert Cremo to police after he was taken into custody on Monday. He confessed to the shooting and identified himself in a surveillance camera recording of him running from the scene, prosecutors said. Cremo's own Smith & Wesson MMP-15 semi-automatic rifle was used in the shooting, authorities say. He bought that gun legally in 2020. He's being represented by a public defender and will be held without bail. Becky Sullivan, NPR News. Akron, Ohio is no longer under a curfew. Authorities put in place following unrest over the weekend. On Sunday, police released body cam video that showed eight officers shooting Jalen Walker about 60 times as he fled a traffic stop June 27th. Officers say he had shot at them. Today, President Biden addressed the case during an appearance in Cleveland. If the evidence reveals potential violations of federal criminal statutes, the Justice Department will take the appropriate action. And I just want you to know what's going to happen. Biden appearing in Cleveland, Ohio, to promote a new aspect of his 2021 economic rescue package. The president and Vice President Harris spoke together today with the wife of Brittany Griner, the WNBA star detained in Russia. NPR's Tamara Keith reports efforts continue to bring Griner home to the United States. In a letter to President Biden written by hand from a Russian jail, Brittany Griner said she was terrified she might be there forever. Written on July 4th, the letter asks him not to forget about her and other detainees. White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre, speaking from Air Force One, said Biden discussed his reply with Griner's wife, Sherelle. President Biden shared the letter with her, uh, with her that he is sending back to Brittany after receiving her deeply personal letter on July 4th. Jean-Pierre says Biden receives daily updates about negotiations to secure Griner's release and that this remains a top priority for the president, along with freeing other wrongfully detained Americans. Tamara Keith, NPR News, the White House. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closes up 69 points, ending the day at 31,037. This is NPR.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts' highest court is considering whether the state can expand mail-in voting. Today, the Supreme Judicial Court heard arguments in a challenge to a new state law that allows mail-in voting for any reason. The state's Republican Party argued the state's constitution says there are only specific reasons for which a person can absentee vote. The Secretary of State's office said mail-in voting is exempt from any constitutional limitation. The court is expected to rule soon because a primary is set for September. A Boston city councilor is questioning the Boston police response to last weekend's white nationalist march through the city's downtown. Members of the group Patriot Front allegedly assaulted a black man during the march. On WBUR's Radio Boston today, City Councilor Ricardo Arroyo says once police got word of the march being in progress, it should have been flanking the group. There's a very clear photo on the Boston Herald from an official Boston Herald photographer about three feet away from this assault. Why is the Boston Herald photographer closer to this column marching through the city than the Boston Police Department? WBR has not received a response from the Boston Police Department addressing Arroyo's concerns. The city of Boston is boosting its investment in early education programs as it works toward the goal of providing universal pre-kindergarten. Today, Mayor Michelle Wu announced the city will spend $20 million to make more classroom seats available this fall to three-year-olds and four-year-olds. The mayor says the spending will boost salaries for workers at community-based child care centers and make pre-K available through home-based child care providers. And the state of Maine is joining a growing list of states trying to protect people from out of state who may come to Maine to get an abortion. The governor signed an executive order that bans Maine state agencies from taking part in another state's investigation into abortion care. The order is intended to protect health care providers who perform abortions in Maine from being targeted by an investigation by a state that bans the procedure. In the forecast, pretty nice day out there. Look for partly cloudy skies tonight. Windy should be in the mid-60s. And then for tomorrow, partly sunny skies. Nice, about 79 degrees at the warmest. That's where it is right now in Boston, 79 degrees at 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Keeper, a secure password manager designed to protect with strong encryption against account takeover, ransomware, and cyber theft. Used by millions globally. More at keepersecurity.com NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The accused gunman in Monday's deadly 4th of July mass shooting in Highland Park, Illinois, considered shooting even more people. It's one of the new details that we have learned after a bond hearing for the suspect today. Authorities say he also admitted to climbing a rooftop along the parade route, unleashing a hail of bullets. And then he said he traveled to Wisconsin after leaving at least seven people dead and injuring dozens of others at the parade. NPR's Cheryl Corley has been following the case and joins us now from Highland Park. Hi, Cheryl. Hi. Okay, so we are finding out new information every day about the suspect. What happened during the court proceedings today? Well, much of this hearing was uh, conducted remotely, but afterwards, Lake County State's uh, attorney, Eric Reinhardt, just made it very clear that the suspect confessed once he had been apprehended. Well, his statement was voluntary. He was uh, questioned in the Highland Park Police Department. He was read his Miranda warnings, offered attorneys, etc. cetera. Uh, he went into details about what he had done. He admitted to what he had done. And Reinhardt said they still don't have a motive. Uh, but we also learn more details about what happened after the shooting. 
that the gunman apparently traveled to Mad Madison, Wisconsin, where he didn't plan another attack, but he apparently was seriously contemplating firing on a crowd of people at another Independence Day celebration that was being held there. Authorities say although he ditched the semi-automatic weapon that he used in Illinois, he had a similar rifle and about 60 more rounds of ammunition with him. He also ditched his phone in Wisconsin, which the FBI recovered. And Cheryl, as you've been spending time in Highland Park since Monday, how do things feel there today? Well, you know, people are still on edge here. Um, you know, the FBI set up a family assistance center at the Highland Park High School. Uh, and that'll be open for anyone who may have been affected in some way to come in for counseling. And a lot of people have been coming in with their children. Uh, there was one man who had a comfort dog outside and kids were running up to the dog before going inside. Mm -hmm. You know, there's still a heavy police presence in the downtown area. Yeah, I stopped in at the uh, Ravinia Farmer's Market. It's held here every Wednesday throughout the uh, warmer months. Uh, some people there knew others who have been killed or injured. Lynn Barron, a psychotherapist who has lived in Highland Park for years, says she had gone to the parade just about every year it's been held. Um, she said today was her first day really being outside again. She had just put up her 4th of July decorations, and she just still find it, found it hard to grasp that a shooting had occurred. And I had the thought, I don't know if I ever want to take this out again. It's always been my favorite holiday. And I, I don't know if this is going to feel the same ever again. And many here were just floored that the shooting occurred in Highland Park since it has a ban on assault weapons. Yeah. I am curious about another detail. Has there been any indication that the Lake County State's attorney will press charges against the suspect's father since he reportedly signed off on the suspect getting a gun before he was of age to do so on his own, right? Yeah. Well, the prosecutor said that hasn't been part of their investigation. It's typically handled by the state police, not by his office. But he left open the possibility. You know, Illinois has relatively strict gun laws. Uh, but the suspect did have five weapons legally, including the uh, high-powered rifle that was used in the shooting. And that was despite authorities being called to his home twice in 2019 for threats of violence and suicide. Uh, police had gone to the home following a call from a family member who said that Cremo was threatening to kill everyone there. And authorities confiscated knives but said there was no sign at the time of any guns there. You know, at the farmer's market, there were several people who knew the father since he had run a convenience store in the area. And one woman, uh, Pauline Dessler, said she just really felt nauseated talking about the ordeal that the community has been through and that the father should be charged. Well, he has a lawyer, and I think he needs one. Let's put it that way. I do think there's responsibility on the part of somebody. If you knowingly put the, a gun in the hands of an unstable suicidal person who has threatened your life and other lives yes that should be called you should be culpable for that and that's how they feel there that is npr's cheryl corley thank you cheryl you're welcome tonight will be the first time this week without a curfew in downtown akron ohio the city had it in place in response to protests that erupted sunday after police released video of the shooting death of 25 year old jayland walker those protests, a sign of weariness, heartbreak, and outrage over the death of another black man at the hands of police. Police say Walker led them on a chase during a traffic stop on June 27th. 
They also say they found a gun in his car afterwards. And as we wait to learn more about the details surrounding his death, those who knew Walker are sharing more details about his life. That includes Robert Hubbard, a local high school wrestling coach who knew Jalen Walker for years. He joins us now. Hi, Robert. Hello. First of all, I just want to ask how you're doing. I've had a little time to come grips with him, so I'm doing better. But when I first heard, I was just shocked, just total shock. It made no sense to me knowing the gentleman I knew, the, the young uh, wrestler I knew since he was about eight or nine years old. It just made no sense. Hmm. Tell us about how you came to know him. What what was Jalen like? I met Jalen through his father brought him to a, a youth wrestling team we have. Uh, and eventually I got him in high school when he was a kid that I never had any problems from. I've had some kids that have tested me and, and pushed me. Jalen Walker was not one of those kids. Jalen was, you know, one of the sweetest kids, hardest workers, you know, one of those kids that, you know, I wish I had 10 of them on my team. That was the type of kid he was. Have you been in touch with Jalen's family since he died? I briefly spoke with his grandmother. I was more close with his father and his father passed away about four years ago, but I did just happen to see his uncle in passing yesterday. When it's rough, we keep seeing each other under these type of circumstances. Have you seen the video that the Akron police released of the altercation in which Jalen was shot and killed? I watched maybe the first three camera views before I couldn't watch it anymore. The Jalen I know that's totally out of character. I don't know. I understand he, he was going through some stuff. He just lost his fiance in a terrible car accident. But still seeing that, it seemed like the way that ended I'm not a police expert on protocol or anything. You know, over these years, we've been talking about de-escalation. It seemed like there was no de-escalation. And once that car stopped, they were just on a hundred. As soon as they get out there, as the family say, it seems like you wouldn't treat an animal that way. It was, it, it was heartbreaking. I'm sorry. After watching it, it, it's, I mean, it was traumatizing. I wonder, given all of that, what would justice look like? You know, I hadn't I hadn't thought about that. What I want is for nobody else to have to lose a loved one the way Jalen's family lost him. We should note here that police have said that there was a shot fired. They have pointed out that they, they did recover a gun from Jalen's car. That's what they say. But I mean, that could have been anything. When they shot him down, he had no weapon on him. So why were they so fearful of him at that point? I don't know. You're a parent. You're a father of sons. I, I guess I'm curious, given this and some of the other high-profile instances that we have seen across this country, deaths of Black men at the hands of police, what would you hope an encounter could look like should yourself, should one of your sons end up in this situation? It is clear that you don't believe it should look like what you saw happen to Jalen. Definitely. I mean, I think... At worst, Jalen might have needed some help if they'd have handled that differently. If they had, uh, you know, subdued him and got him in, they probably could have got him some help. This is somebody that has not hurt anybody. But now he's, you know, he doesn't get to go to his reign like the gentleman in, in, in Illinois. And if my kids are having something like that, hopefully they can get him some help. When I think of my son, like my, my son was home uh, this weekend from school. He just graduated from Ohio State in Columbus, and he, man, I had to give him an extra hug. Like, I'm so glad I have my son here. I, I can hug you, but if, if something like this happens, my wishes is that they can get him the help, not be judge and jury, but actually 
you know, if he needs to be arrested, get him arrested. That would be my wishes. Not to be afraid of him to the point that after I put 60 rounds on him, he still needs to be handcuffed. Robert Hubbard is a local high school wrestling coach who first met Jalen Walker when he was a young man and has known him for years. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you. It's a case that went cold some 45 million years ago, what killed a couple hundred ancient frogs. NPR's Ari Daniel brings us a mystery that at long last may have been solved. Central Germany was once a coastal subtropical swamp. With loads of creatures, loads of beasts running around. Including, says Daniel Falk, a paleontology PhD student at University College Cork, ancestral horses, giant crocodiles, huge snakes, and plenty of frogs and toads. But in the modern era, things look rather different. It's kind of like a fossil crime scene. The swamp had preserved a couple hundred fossilized frogs and toads. And the mysterious question is, like, why did all those animals die? Like, why did those frogs die? For a long time, scientists thought the swamp had dried out, which could have killed the frogs. But Falk wasn't so sure. I basically counted every single bone in every specimen. The bones were in good shape, so the animals were healthy. There was even fossilized poop in a couple of them, so they didn't starve. And there weren't any predator marks, so the frogs and toads weren't eaten. Process of elimination. And what was left, based on similar fossil deposits elsewhere, and knowing about modern-day frogs, was that, and here's where it gets a bit gruesome, the ancient animals drowned while mating especially the females. And they sink down in the water. And if the females can't make it up to the surface at some stage, they unfortunately drown. It's a theory Falk and his colleagues describe in a study published today in the journal Papers in Paleontology. If they're right, then it's not the males who revealed what happened. They're long gone. It's the females that have been preserved, whispering their story to us millions of years later. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. On Wall Street, an upswing for all the main indices. The Dow picked up a quarter of a percent, 70 points, to close at 31,038. S&P rose for a third straight day, up by 0.36 percent. It ended the day at 38.45. The Nasdaq gained just about the same, 0.35 percent, to close at 11,362. Details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. It's now 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by New England Botanic Garden at Tower Hill, less than an hour from Boston, welcoming families to its new whimsical garden, the Ramble. More at nebg.org. And the ICA Watershed in East Boston. Ride the water shuttle to see art on both sides of the harbor. Tickets at icaboston.org. Kelly's Roast Beef is planning to expand outside Massachusetts. The 71-year-old company that was founded in Revere will open franchise locations later this year. Two will be in Florida, one in Salem, New Hampshire. The out-of-state franchises will still represent. They'll have signs that read Kelly's, Boston's legendary roast beef, and seafood. The forecast is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for helping make them the nation's number one children's hospital nine years in a row. BostonChildrens.org slash answers. And Worcester Cultural Coalition, July 8th, Music Worcester presents jazz legend Wynton Marsalis at the Hanover Theater. More at WorcesterCulture.org. 
Should have a breezy night tonight. Some clouds around lows in the mid-60s. Tomorrow, clouds and sunshine mix it up, rising to the upper 70s. Friday, clouds and showers still just below 80 degrees. Then it looks like we should have a sunny weekend on the way with highs in the upper 70s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed. Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of z Night Pain, a nighttime pain reliever designed to help people fall asleep fast. It contains diphenhydramine and acetaminophen. More at ZZZQuill.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. For more than a decade, Syrians have been finding refuge from their country's civil war in neighboring Turkey. The U.N. says more than 3.6 million refugees are sheltering there. But NPR's Peter Kenyon visited the Aegean port city of Izmir, which for years has had a sizable Syrian population. He found Turkish residents increasingly wish they would go home, leaving refugees to wonder and worry about their future. Izmir is an ancient port city long used to seeing travelers. But judging by recent comments, many residents no longer welcome refugees from Syria. In a tea house near Izmir's Kemeralta market area, 58-year-old Ibru, like many of the people who agreed to speak with the reporter, asked that her family name not be used. She's concerned about repercussions for speaking candidly about a sensitive subject. She says partly the problems are economic. Her friend's adult children are mostly unemployed, and she thinks it's because the Syrians will work for less money. Beyond that, she says the Syrians have completely overrun certain neighborhoods. She was shocked to see the changes when she visited one recently. They have moved into many sectors. I went there. I couldn't believe my eyes. That place is no longer Izmir. It's Syria now, with loads of their shops. In addition, another thing I oppose is allowing them to own places here. Ebru repeats a stereotype common among the Turkish Izmir residents I met, that the Syrians have too many children, which she says is, quote, not good for our country. Government figures estimate there are nearly 150,000 Syrians in Izmir, and the 2.7 million people who live here think that's more than enough. 52-year-old Nihat sits at the entrance to a small shop. He started it for his 24-year-old son and minds it on weekends. He says his son couldn't get the job he really wanted because of competition from Syrians. We have a lot of unemployed young people. Their jobs have been taken by the people coming here. That's my observation. People from other countries finding jobs here? Why shouldn't our own citizens be earning their bread here? Turkish politicians have seized on the issue. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, seen by some as a hero for opening Turkey's doors when most of Europe and the U.S. were closing theirs, is now promising to send one million Syrians back to their homeland. Leaders of the main secular opposition party are also promising to send, quote, our Syrian brothers back to their country. One of the most outspoken politicians is Umit Ozdağ, who was twice expelled from Turkey's far-right MHP party. He founded the Zafir, or Victory Party, and uses the platform to rail against foreigners. The party released this animated video, which shows two of Azda's aides asking how he plans to get rid of the foreigners. Their eyes widen in amazement as they see the giant catapult standing behind him, as Azda says he will get rid of all of them. 
It's a depressing shift, says Iza Metenda, who works for a group providing assistance to Syrians. She says politicians are finding it easy to attract attention and supporters by attacking refugees. Umid Ozdağ is the ugliest example, but I observe this in all of the opposition parties. They cannot offer anything new. They pretend this is the main issue, as if they can solve it with their rhetoric. Syrians here say they can definitely feel the rising discontent with their continued presence. Outside a barbershop in Izmir, Mohammed Hamza says after nine years in Turkey, he doesn't see how he can go back to his home in Aleppo, which suffered heavy damage when government forces recaptured it. He says his daughters are excelling in Turkish schools. They love their teachers and don't even speak Arabic. Hamza says he has dozens of relatives already in Europe and doesn't think there's anything left for him in Syria. My house is gone. I had a workshop. That's also gone. What will I do in Syria? Translate for my daughters? We want to go to Europe. I wish that Europe can take us. But Europe, which gave billions to Turkey to keep the refugees from traveling further north, has shown no sign of opening its doors. In Turkey, people are proud of the role their country played, but after a decade, they feel they're competing with Syrians for jobs and benefits. And political leaders are stoking that tension as they prepare for elections next year. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Izmir, Turkey. Okay, let's take a few minutes to get outside because summer hiking season is here. And in York's Adirondack Mountains, some of the most popular views are from historic fire towers. NPR's Brian Mann made the trek to a tower on the summit of Hurricane Mountain, leaving early enough to see the sunrise. He sent us this audio postcard. It's just after 3 a.m. and pitch dark as I head into the woods on a gorgeous summer night my headlamp picking out the trail ahead of me. Seeing the sunrise from a mountain fire tower is one of my favorite things. The downside, you have to climb in darkness to make it happen. It's perfectly still as I hike, no birds, no wind. It's a little dreamlike. Then I reach a bog on the flank of the mountain. The frogs are already wide awake. I hike on, using the headlamp to pick my way over roots and rocky streams. As you might expect, I don't see another soul. The mountain is all mine. People sometimes ask me if, you know, it's kind of spooky, especially when I'm hiking by myself through the night. And, you know, there is a, a little bit of a Blair Witchy sort of vibe. A little haunted. But soon the sky starts to glow, a lilac pre-dawn light that filters through the trees. It's enough I can shut off the headlamp. The light is also enough to bring out the birds. The next hour, I move higher through birdsong, like a wash of color. We live in a world where forest fires are a growing threat because of climate change. The fire towers here were built a century ago after overlogging led to wildfires that burned nearly a million acres. I break out onto open rock into the wind on the summit of Hurricane. Around me, the distant mountains are still dusk blue, topped in mist with deep shadows in the valleys. Up ahead, I see the tall metal spire with a little cabin on top. 
These structures aren't used anymore by fire spotters. There are better, more modern ways to spot and track blazes. But roughly half the Adirondack towers are still standing, and most are open to hikers. I've climbed to the top of the fire tower, and you can hear the wind just crackling around me. It's fierce up here. Fierce but warm. A summer wind rich with smells of pine and dusty rock. Looking from the tower window, the eastern sky glows brighter. And just after 5 a.m., the sun pops cherry red on the horizon. The last darkness washes away as the mountains and forest are colored with rose light. Brian Mann, NPR News in New York's Adirondack Mountains. COVID shots are rolling out for very young kids, six months to five years old. But lots of people still have questions. So we put some to a pediatrician and a health reporter, like does the manufacturer matter? And if a child has already had COVID, when is the best time to get the vaccine to maximize its efficacy? To hear those answers and more on what to expect for the under five set, listen to NPR's daily news podcast, Consider This. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Red Sox and Tampa Bay Rays finish up their three-game series tonight at Fenway Park. Both teams have won one game. Tonight, the Sox will put Brian Bayo in the spotlight for his Major League Pitching debut. It'll be Corey Kluber for Tampa Bay. Should be a beautiful night at the ballpark. Partly cloudy, windy tonight in the mid-60s. Tomorrow and Friday should only make it to the upper 70s, so a little milder. And then tomorrow should have partly sunny skies, clouds, though, and showers move in for Friday. This is WBUR, 79 degrees now in the Boston area at 4.30. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. And Red's Best, with local home delivery and pickup at the Boston Fish Pier. Direct access to fish, shellfish, and sushi from networked fishermen. Red'sBest.com This summer, Circle Round, WBUR's storytelling podcast for the young and young at heart, is coming to a page and stage near you. Join me, Rebecca Shear, on Saturday at WBUR City Space in Boston for a party celebrating two new Circle Round picture books. Plus, we're keeping the party going all summer long with live storytelling events at bookstores and museums across New England. Find tickets and more information at WBUR.org slash Circle Round. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Authorities say the man charged with seven counts of first-degree murder for the Independence Day parade shooting outside Chicago gave police a voluntary confession, even identifying himself on surveillance video dressed as a woman to conceal his identity. Robert Cremo III made his first court appearance today. Authorities said he contemplated shooting up another event when he fled to Wisconsin but turned back. From member station WBEZ, Mariah Wolfel was in the courtroom. We heard essentially one or two words from him where he said that he did not have an attorney. He will be represented by the public defender in Lake County, um, sat wearing a black shirt and just listened as the victim's names were read. Um, Really no reaction from him. Later, we learned new information today that um, Cremo actually, while police were searching for him, he drove to Madison and contemplated opening fire at an event in Madison, Wisconsin. 
police found 83 bullet shells and three ammunition magazines on the rooftop, they say Cremo fled from. The U.S. Marshal Service has arrested 1,500 fugitives with help from the U.S. Justice Department. Here's NPR's Ryan Lucas. Attorney General Merrick Garland says Operation North Star targeted violent fugitives in 10 cities, including Baltimore, Chicago, Houston, Los Angeles, New York, New Orleans, and Washington, D.C. They apprehended over 1,500 fugitives in those cities, most of whom were wanted for the most serious, violent, and harmful offenses, including in particular homicide. He says three of the people arrested are suspects in last month's mass shooting on South Street in Philadelphia. Violent crime and murder have been on the rise in the U.S., and the U.S. Marshal Service operation, working closely with state and local law enforcement, is part of the Justice Department's broader initiative to try to tackle the problem. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The highest court in Massachusetts is considering arguments it heard today about a new state law that makes it easier to vote by mail. The Massachusetts Republican Party calls the law unconstitutional and says it could lead to voter fraud. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports. The new law allows anyone to vote by mail for any reason. But the Mass GOP argues the state constitution only allows people to cast absentee ballots in certain circumstances. Michael Walsh, an attorney for the party, also said that early voting isn't constitutional, even though the state has allowed it for eight years. Decisions, no matter how wrong or how old or how bad, if they're bad, they deserve to be overturned. But Assistant Attorney General Adam Hornstein argued that the state constitution gives the legislature authority to expand access to voting. The legislature has broad power to deal with elections. The court is expected to issue a decision quickly so it doesn't affect voting for the September primary. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is committing $20 million in city funds to expand free, high-quality child care in the city at facilities that include small family-run centers. As WBUR's Max Larkin reports, the mayor says all kinds of child care providers have a role to play to improve quality and accessibility. Boston already subsidizes free child care at some community-based centers that pay workers fairly and maintain high academic quality. Today's announcement means qualifying home-based centers will be eligible for similar support starting next year. And Wu says they have a unique role to play in a broader fight for access. Many families are accessing care through home-based centers because they're closer to home or, as you heard, have more flexible hours, multilingual options, direct cultural connections to communities. This latest expansion will push Boston to over 3,500 free pre-kindergarten seats, but the city still needs thousands more. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. A trainee at the Massachusetts State Police Academy was hospitalized today when his weapon discharged and hit him in the leg during a training exercise. A spokesman for the state police say he was conscious and alert with non-life-threatening injuries. The State Police Division of Standards and Training will investigate. 79 degrees in the Boston area. Sure is nice out there right now. We should have a breezy night around tonight. A few clouds around. Temperatures in the mid-60s. Tomorrow, clouds and sunshine both rising to the upper 70s. Friday, clouds and showers still just below 80 degrees. Then looks like we have a sunny weekend on the way. This is WBUR. It's 435 support for NPR comes from this station. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. 
and from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. Here is something you just don't hear American presidents say. You didn't want to get involved in the Ukraine conflict militarily for obvious reasons. Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Yes. You are? That's the commitment we made. President Biden in Tokyo in May saying the U.S. will defend the self-governed island of Taiwan in the event of an invasion by mainland China. China claims the island as its own and has threatened to invade if Taiwan were to declare independence. Now, the U.S. has a long-standing policy of ambiguity when it comes to talking about all this, not wanting to risk conflict with China. The White House says that U.S. policy on Taiwan has not changed, even as the president committed to a policy that would represent a significant change. What is indisputably changing is how Taiwan views its role in light of another global conflict, a conflict with some similarities to its own, the one between Russia and Ukraine. The Ukrainian people are very brave, and we are taking the war in Ukraine into a very serious uh, internal discussions. Taiwan's Foreign Minister Joseph Wu spoke to NPR in May and said Taiwan looks to Ukraine as a model for how it could defend itself against a much larger adversary with help. Defending Taiwan is our own responsibility. But what we need is the international support speaking out uh, to support us and to provide us with the necessary means for us to be able to defend ourselves. It's not just Taiwan's government that's taking notice. Chris Horton is a veteran journalist based there. He told me people in Taiwan are paying special attention to events in Ukraine. He picks up on it in surprising places, like speaking with a young surgeon recently, someone who focuses on pancreas and thyroid surgeries. She told Horton she is adding trauma surgery to her skill set. Why? With the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, like many people here, uh, especially younger people, she's trying to think about what she can do uh, to apply what she what she knows and what she does towards helping uh, Taiwan were it to be attacked by China. And so, for her, trauma surgery is the you know the lowest hanging fruit. Horton says she's not looking to learn how to shoot a gun, at least not yet. And she's not alone. For many people in Taiwan, oh, there's been a kind of jolting effect uh, that has woken people up to the the possibility that an invasion or attack by China could be more when than if. Horton wrote about this for The Atlantic in a piece headlined, The Lessons Taiwan is Learning from Ukraine. He has lived and reported in Taiwan for seven years, and he says people in his life were not having the should I stay or should I go conversation, not until this year. This year has been the year that you've really started to have people start to think about their plan Bs here. There's a, a much more sense of immediacy and we need to think about this now. That's not just uh, families thinking about, well, you know, do we stay, do we leave? It's also the government saying, look, you know, is our strategy to deal with a possible attack from China, is it, is it a good strategy? And uh, what is Ukraine doing against Russia that we can emulate that would work? So tell me, 
tell me a story uh, about someone you have met, someone you've interviewed, who is now preparing for possible conflict, possible war. Because it occurs to me that one thing that's very different between Taiwan and Ukraine, among the things that are very different, is that there haven't been a lot of opportunities in Taiwan to gain uh, battlefield conflict experience. If you're a surgeon, for example, you're talking about a real shift in mindset um, and a very recent one. That's right. And something that uh, both the government and civil society kind of weren't really prepared for. So I I recently attended a, uh, a screening of, of a film, a documentary about what's, um, what's been going on in Hong Kong. Uh, and I spoke with one audience member afterwards. Uh, she's in her mid-30s. She's basically like, I would be happy to learn how to do first aid. I would be happy to learn how to shoot a gun, but I just don't have those opportunities. Here you have, uh, I would say, insufficient uh, reservist program as well as uh, conscription, and it's all, it's all men. Women uh, are being considered now as candidates for these programs, but time is of the essence. And I think a lot of people are just, they're asking themselves and they're asking the government, what can we do today to be ready for tomorrow? When you talk to ordinary people, um, to civilians, I'm curious what they might be doing to prepare. Um, when I was reporting in Ukraine right before the uh, invasion, um, people had go bags packed in case they had to run. Um, and they were trying to get their hands on guns and learn how to use them. That makes sense in, in Ukraine's context. Uh, sadly, here, if something were to kick off, the ability for people to leave would probably not exist or be close to non-existent. It's an island uh, for starters. It, it is an island, yes. And uh, and so like any sort of invasion attempt would start off with attempts to uh, to control airspace. And that would include commercial civilian flights. So go bags, I mean, if you're going to leave Taiwan, the people who are thinking about leaving, they're, they're making plans now. And uh, maybe they're sending children to other countries to get uh, citizenship. Is that happening? I mean, it is happening, uh, I, I, at least anecdotally. In my experiences here, people are talking about it and doing it, but uh, we don't really we don't really have data available to say like how much of a thing that is, but it's definitely... Yeah, it's part of the conversation. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of guns, I mean, basically, there's there's a few articles that have come out recently that have highlighted the uh, the influx of people signing up for like airsoft gun classes. And it's better than nothing, I suppose, but it really doesn't give you much of an idea of what it's like to fire a, a real firearm. Uh, but I think that's really all people can do here because there's just not many options. For people in Taiwan, what is the understanding, what is the expectation of how the rest of the world fits in? Um, because as you know, uh, the U.S., its allies have rallied to help Ukraine. Is the expectation that there would be a, a rallying to help Taiwan? So in terms of American assistance, I think... I think most Taiwanese people do feel that the U.S. would provide intelligence uh, and weapons at least prior to a conflict and intelligence throughout the conflict. But I don't think anyone here is expecting or taking for granted that uh, American soldiers would come to Taiwan's aid. How did President Biden's recent remarks that caused a bit of an uproar here in the States, uh, how did they play there? The, the comment that the U.S., yes, is committed to defend Taiwan militarily. In American media, there were a lot of uh, a lot of comments uh, and observations, you know, saying like, okay, this is Biden making a gaffe. But here you have a situation where 
Taiwanese people are expecting American assistance of some kind and American support, at the very least, you know, sanctions, but uh, probably more than that. But uh, also looking at Ukraine and what it's going through now, Taiwanese people have, I think, kind of generally come to the conclusion that no matter what happens, if Taiwanese people aren't willing to defend Taiwan themselves, at least initially, then uh, additional help won't be forthcoming. Journalist Chris Horton, we've been speaking to him from his base in Taipei. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mary Louise. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Rents and housing prices are skyrocketing across the country, and paying for a place to live and work is becoming just one more seemingly insurmountable challenge for child care providers. From member station KPBS in San Diego, reporter Claire Tregesser explains. A dozen young children sit in a circle on the sun-speckled lawn of Liberty Winds Home Child Care. We are oasis, mighty, mighty oasis. After singing their school song, she dismisses them one by one to leave the circle, visit the potty, and then pick out their snacks. Okay, how about The idyllic scene belies the more than two years of turmoil Wynne faced during COVID. She was forced to close when the pandemic first hit and took two months to reopen. And then within two weeks, we got the eviction. She frantically searched for a new place where she could both live and have her childcare business. She ultimately found a home just north of San Diego. She had to take out a federal emergency disaster relief loan and spend $20,000 to put up a fence to protect children from a nearby lake. I had to put a lot of the, the loan money into this place because it's on a lake. It's lovely, it's gorgeous, but it was a, a huge risk. Her lease will be up next month, and Wynne just received more bad news. Her landlord is turning the property into a luxury Airbnb. So Wynne is out of business again, this time permanently. So our last day is August 26th. Oasis of San Diego will be ending. By some estimates, two-thirds of child care providers across the country rent instead of own their place of business. This creates a crisis on top of a crisis. One in 10 childcare businesses closed during COVID, and now many are struggling to reopen due to staggering rental costs. It puts the providers in a terribly vulnerable position. Laura Cohn is an early education expert. The childcare provider is totally dependent on that rental situation for their livelihood and that moving the business would be incredibly disruptive to a lot of parents and families. Without government funding to help providers, childcare availability will continue to decline, says Kim McDougall, who runs childcare for the San Diego County YMCA. The funding mechanism for childcare is, is truly broken and the way we have built our, our economic model is truly broken and that's something that we really need to address going forward if we're going to solve the childcare crisis because parents can't pay more, providers can't charge less, and it's never going to match up without public subsidy to close the gap. A subsidy certainly would have helped win who's being replaced by the luxury Airbnb. She will have to pack up or sell everything, 
From the art supplies and tiny tables and chairs to the aquariums holding snakes and turtles. And all of the money she put into the property will be lost. I was so grateful to have found my calling, but I mean, you know, if I really think about it, there's just I'm just quite vulnerable. The kids at her school and their parents will have to find new care when wind moves. For NPR News, I'm Claire Tregesser in San Diego. Thousands of people are gathering in Birmingham, Alabama for a huge competition. Spectators will see the best in gymnastics, archery, and drone racing. We will preview the 2022 World Games tomorrow on Morning Edition. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, she's huge on the internet. Now she's taking the regional summer fair system by storm. The story of Linda Skeens coming up on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, helping protect small businesses with Comcast Business Security Edge. Powering possibilities, Comcast Business Internet required. Restrictions apply. Ollie at UMass Boston, now offering free summer programs for older adults over 50. More at umb.edu slash O-L-L-I. And Tufts Medicine. It's not just medicine, it's Tufts Medicine. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Go to WBUR.org or ask your smart speaker if you have one to play WBUR. In sports tonight at Fenway Park, it's the major league debut of Red Sox pitching phenom Brian Bayo. The 23-year-old right-hander is 10-4 and with 114 strikeouts this year in the Sox minor league system. He'll take them on tonight at Fenway Park against the Tampa Bay Rays. First pitch is at 7-10. Should be a beautiful night for a ball game tonight. Look for partly cloudy skies overnight, about 65 for a low. Partly sunny tomorrow, 79 degrees tops. It is 79 degrees now in the Boston area at 449. Well, this from a business owner in today's economy, this is new. For the most part, none of our vendors have raised their prices, which is just, you feel so lucky. I'm Kai Rizdal, Retail Rewards, next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. To serve in the United States Congress, you have to be at least 25 years old. And this year, for the first time ever, the youngest candidates running aren't millennials. They're actually part of Generation Z, which Pew Research Center defines as anyone born in between 1997 and 2012. And this new generation is not looking to compromise. NPR's Elena Moore reports. If you were born in the late 90s, school shooting drills have been commonplace since you were small. You've grown up witnessing protests over everything from stopping racial violence to fighting climate change. And the first presidential election you were eligible to vote in was 2016. For Maxwell Alejandro Frost, experiences like these are some of the reason Generation Z stands out. Our generation has been born into a lot of trauma and a lot of civil unrest. And I think because of that, our generation naturally thinks about things in a bit of a different way. Frost is running for Congress in Florida's 10th district, an open and solidly blue seat that contains parts of Orlando. He's been an activist and an organizer for a decade, working for the ACLU and March for Our Lives. And at 25, if elected, 
he would potentially be the first Gen Z member of Congress. Throughout his life, he can remember inherently political moments like the ones mentioned before. Turning on the TV and seeing a bunch of people sleeping outside of Wall Street, talking about something called wealth inequality, right? Like seeing that in elementary school, growing up, learning that 30 minutes away from me, a kid that looked like me who was wearing a hoodie was murdered for being Black, Trayvon Martin, and seeing the outrage after that, um, Columbine, Pulse. And Frost isn't the only Gen Z candidate. In the St. Louis suburbs, 25-year-old Ray Reed is vying to oust Republican Ann Wagner from Missouri's 2nd Congressional District. He pushes back against those who say he should start in local politics. Which is really just political talk for, let's get him in our system, let's teach him how to play the game our way, and then if we say he's ready, he can run for a higher office. The real risk is to nominate the same type of Democratic candidates election after election after election and somehow expect a different result. And while both Reed and Frost are progressives, honing in on issues like curbing gun violence, passing the Green New Deal and canceling student debt, there's no denying that age is a part of their campaigns. Frost again. Yes, we march. Yes, we engage in mutual aid. Yes, we engage on social media. And now we're running for office because we believe that we are prepared to be in the rooms, uh, to be the voice for our communities. And we, and we can do that. And young people should be allowed. This drive makes sense to Amanda Littman, who's the CEO of Run for Something, an organization that supports first-time Democratic candidates running for office. Littman is a millennial. You don't run for office as a 25-year-old because it is your next step in your career or it is you know the thing you've been planning for since you were a kindergartner or a college president you run because there is a problem that is so fiercely driving you that you can't imagine doing anything else with your time but this isn't just happening on the left caroline levitt is a fierce conservative running for congress in new hampshire's first district a seat currently held by vulnerable democrat chris pappas levitt turns 25 this summer There's a very one-sided culture that we live in. How do we break through that mold? It's by electing young people to office that can resonate with these voters, have a platform at the national stage that can show them ideas, policies, values that they're not hearing elsewhere at all. Levitt is already a vetted GOP staffer, working as an assistant press secretary in the Trump administration and as the spokeswoman for New York Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, who's a millennial. Levitt argues the Democratic progressives have gone too extreme and hopes her campaign will energize young conservatives, even though Gen Z's early voting trends are decidedly liberal. So I think some of these more progressive candidates are just a reflection of the the system that exists. Um, and it's exact system I'm trying to fight against. And that fighting attitude is shared by Frost, the progressive running in Florida. We come to the negotiating table not already at the compromise, which is usually what you know Democrats tend to do. And I think this is part of the reason why the Republican Party has these long-term plans that a lot of times come into fruition. This determination to stand by your values shows a clear deviation from millennials. That's according to Kristen Soltis Anderson, a conservative pollster and strategist, and also a millennial. The frame has shifted from, I'm going to bring about that change by being someone who looks for opportunities to work across the aisle, and more, I'm going to disrupt the institutions and systems that are allowing the other side to continue to prevail. But, strategists argue, coming to Washington and disrupting the institution 
isn't received the same way by Democrats compared to Republicans. While Trump allies like Stefanik have moved up in GOP ranks, millennial trailblazers on the Democratic side remain left out of leadership. And because of this, Anderson says really no party has a leg up right now. I don't think either party has a dramatic advantage on elevating Generation Z voices in elected office at this moment. And that's despite the fact that Democrats do have an advantage among those voters at the ballot box. So there's still some uncertainty here. But then again, for Gen Zers seeking national office, this is only year one. Elena Moore, NPR News. Deep in Southwest Virginia, there's a county fair where last month, one woman won first, second, and third place for best cookies. She also swept all three awards for candy and for savory bread. In fact, she won the blue ribbon for cake, pie, brownies, sweet bread, and best overall baked good. That was strawberry fudge. She also won for canned tomatoes, canned corn, pickled peppers, sauerkraut, relish spaghetti sauce, and both jelly and jam. <laughs> she even took top honors in quilt embroidery. And after the Virginia Kentucky District Fair posted these utterly dominating results to Facebook in June, you guessed it, she went viral. Have you heard of Linda Skeens in the kitchen? She a queen, VA, Kewa District Fair. She a blue ribbon machine, yeah. She was celebrated in a song and on Facebook comments and in plenty of memes, all of which were wondering, who exactly is this champion chef, Linda Skeens? With online dating and whatnot, I think a lot of girls are pretty good at tracking people down on the internet. Mason on the Mic is a radio host at Hot 93.3 in Dallas. She posted a TikTok asking her followers to help find the Linda Skeens. Now, Linda Skeens' granddaughter saw that and reached out. Using that name, Mason tracked down a phone number. You do realize that everyone on the internet wants you to cook for them. Thanksgiving dinner, Christmas dinner, they want you to cook it all for them. I'm busy cooking for my family. Linda Skeens shared that she was diagnosed with leukemia in December, but that the treatment she's on is working and that cooking for her friends and family helps. She was flattered by the comparisons to the all-time great athletes like NASCAR driver Dale Earnhardt. Compare me to Dale Earnhardt Sr. I said, no way I could ever be in his category. He's my hero. <laughs> Perhaps Linda Skeens was being too humble. She admitted that last year at a different county fair, she won 40 ribbons. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Subaru with the 2023 Subaru Crosstrek, an SUV with standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and an available 182-horsepower engine. Love, it's what makes Subaru, Subaru. And from Imaginable Futures, supporting the book Pregnant Girl, a story of teen motherhood, college, and creating a better future for young families, written by Generation Hope founder Nicole Lynn Lewis, generationhope.org. And from Nancy McKinnon, a member of the NPR Foundation Board of Trustees, working to help provide the highest quality public service journalism to communities across the USA. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR. A major league debut at Fenway Park tonight as 23-year-old Brian Bayo takes the mound for the Sox in their third and final game against the Tampa Bay Rays. Corey Kluber pitches for the Rays. Bayo's first pitch is at 7:10. 
In the forecast, partly cloudy tonight in the mid-60s. Should be pretty windy overnight tonight. Tomorrow and Friday, only making it to the upper 70s. Tomorrow we should have partly sunny skies, then clouds and maybe a shower move in for Friday. Should be dry and sunny over the weekend. 79 degrees now in the Boston area. This is WBUR. It's 459. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Gas prices hit record highs. Now they've fallen by nearly 25 cents a gallon. Oil companies have been wrapping up production in the U.S., and that's expected to continue. You're going to see these numbers here tick up even more. They're going to put the wells in the ground, and they're going to take oil out of the ground and sell it. It's Wednesday, July 6th. This is All Things Considered. The increase in supply combined with softening demand coming up. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead for decades, it was impossible to say that a specific weather event was caused or exacerbated by climate change. But now scientists are more confident about when to make the link. For a garden variety heat wave, in the United States, climate change has increased that heat wave temperature by between 3 and 5 degrees Fahrenheit. It's tougher to tie events such as wildfires, though, to climate change. These stories and Disney Plus brings Ms. Marvel to Pakistan. Coming up, it's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The man charged with seven counts of murder after prosecutors say he unleashed a deadly hail of gunfire on a 4th of July parade in the Chicago suburb of Highland Park made an appearance in court today. A judge ordering Robert Cremo III to be held without bail. Lake County State's Attorney Eric Reinhardt says he expects additional charges will be forthcoming. For each individual was hurt, people can anticipate an attempt murder charge as well as an aggravated battery with a firearm charge. All of those are Class X felonies, uh, which have obviously serious uh, prison time associated with them. The prosecutor says police found 83 bullet casings and three ammunition magazines on a rooftop where they contend Cremo fired upon the crowd. Police say the alleged shooter fled to neighboring Wisconsin, where he also contemplated carrying out another shooting before being taken into custody. Two sources tell NPR the House Select January 6th Committee has secured a deal with former Trump White House General Counsel Pat Cipollone to testify. NPR's Claudio Grisales reports the appearance will take place behind closed doors Friday. Former White House General Counsel Pat Cipollone appeared in an informal interview before the House Select Committee in April. But in recent weeks, the panel has ramped up its calls for Cipollone to testify formally, including committee Republican Vice Chair Liz Cheney at a recent hearing. Indeed, our evidence shows that Mr. Cipollone and his office tried to do what was right. They tried to stop a number of President Trump's plans for January 6th. The panel issued a subpoena last week to secure Cipollone's testimony, which is now scheduled to take place before next week's public hearings on the January 6th mob and former President Trump's inaction for over three hours as the attack unfolded. 
Claudia Grisales, NPR News, Washington. Firefighters in California continue to work around the clock trying to get a handle on a fire that broke out Monday. Remember station KQED Daphne Young reports authorities say the Electra fire has burned nearly 4,000 acres. It's just 10 percent contained. Authorities issued mandatory evacuation orders for more than 1,000 residents in Amador and Calaveras counties in Northern California. Those orders come as Cal Fire crews work from ground and air to knock down one of the largest wildfires in the state so far this year. Electrifier spokesperson Chris Vestal says residents' safety and property damage are the main reason for issuing those evacuation orders. We really want to remind everybody, and it's not just on the Electrifier, but all fires that are going to happen this year inevitably, is that when we make those evacuation orders, we take a lot into consideration. The cause of the fire is under investigation. For NPR News, I'm Daphne Young. Stocks bounced back a bit today, eking out modest gains. The Dow up 69 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Law enforcement authorities want the public to alert them to future demonstrations that white supremacist groups may be planning in greater Boston. Boston police say they were caught off guard when 100 members of the Patriot Front group marched through downtown Boston over the weekend. Robert Trustin is regional director for the Anti-Defamation League of New England. He says the group likely chose Boston because of its ties to the founding of the country. It's not a coincidence that they came here on the 4th of July weekend. They masked their white supremacy behind patriotism. According to them, we're living at a time right now where the United States is in distress. And so instead of celebrating a holiday, they use a holiday as a time to protest. Trustin says the fact that law enforcement did not know about the march shows the group is highly organized. Chatham police are looking for whomever left to anti-Semitic flyers in the town yesterday and Monday. Investigators say the flyers appear to have been dropped randomly and do not target any one person or location. Chatham police believe the group named on the flyer has distributed the material in other towns and cities in other states. Boston's program that provides summer jobs to teenagers is short of its goal of filling 6,000 jobs this summer. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says there are still about 2,500 positions available. We're working to simplify the process and make sure that our young people can get through the paperwork that's needed and documentation. But most of all, we need the word to spread that we still have room available and we're pushing to get beyond what we have ever done before in the city. The city expanded funding to provide about 1,000 more jobs this summer than previous years. Wu says the city has extended the application deadline until this Sunday to try to give people more time to land an opportunity. If you're planning to head to the beach this evening, be aware there's a risk of rip currents. The National Weather Service says there's a moderate risk for rip currents for beaches along the Outer Cape. That's also the case at south-facing beaches on Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket, and the south coast. That means you should check with beach patrols and swim within sight of a lifeguard. In the forecast, a nice night overnight tonight. Should have partly cloudy skies, comfortable temperatures about 65. And then for tomorrow, clouds and sun in a blend rising to about 70 degrees. Friday, clouds and showers still just about 80 degrees or a bit below that. 79 degrees now in the Boston area at 5.06. WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, committed to making privacy online simple. Used by tens of millions, they offer internet privacy with one download. DuckDuckGo, privacy simplified at DuckDuckGo.com.
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. Filling your gas tank can still be a painful experience, but drivers are starting to see some relief. The average price of gasoline has fallen by nearly 25 cents a gallon after hitting a record high last month. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now. Hey, Scott. Hi, Juana. So, Scott, nobody would call gasoline a bargain today, but the price has come down a bit. What's going on? Yeah, AAA says the average price nationwide has dropped to about $4.78 a gallon. That's down from a peak just over $5 in the middle of last month. Gas prices are still pretty high by historical standards, though, and as a result, some people are driving less. They're combining errands, they're adjusting plans for summer road trips. Martha Walker is a teacher in Charleston, West Virginia. She and a friend had been looking forward to a lengthy driving vacation down south this summer, but they redrew those plans because of the high price of gasoline. I was going to go on a trip down the Mississippi River and through some Gulf states and back up the Natchez Trace, and we ended up going just to St. Louis and coming back rather than doing the big long loop. What's more, instead of driving to the beach this summer, Walker's planning to just visit some nearby state parks. And, you know, a lot of people are making similar changes. As a result, government data shows demand for gasoline is lower than it would ordinarily be this time of year. Is that decreasing demand why the price has come down from last month's record high? That's part of the story. We're also seeing increased supply. Uh, You need crude oil, of course, to make gasoline, and oil companies have been slowly ramping up production here in the U.S. They're pumping more oil now than at any time since the early months of the pandemic, about a million barrels a day, more oil than they were a year ago. And John Kilduff, who's an energy analyst at Again Capital, says he expects that domestic oil production to keep increasing through the end of this year. So you're going to see these numbers here uh, tick up even more. It's a terrific operating environment for exploration and producing companies, and they're going to pump. They're going to put the wells in the ground, and they're going to take oil out of the ground and sell it uh, because it's just too lucrative not to. And in addition to that increased U.S. oil output, OPEC members have been slowly boosting their production. And Kilda says it's become increasingly clear that Russia's oil output is not going away. Uh, China and India continue to buy Russian oil. So global oil supplies up, global demand for gasoline is down. That's a recipe for falling oil prices. The U.S. benchmark for crude oil has dropped below $100 a barrel. So, Scott, what does this all mean for drivers who need to fill up their tanks? Well, gasoline prices could have more room to fall. And remember, this is thanks to market forces, not, say, that cut in gas taxes that President Biden proposed. You might think the White House would be trumpeting this drop in gasoline prices. Instead, the administration's been urging refiners and retailers to cut prices further. Now, analysts do say if crude oil prices stay where they are right now, retail gasoline prices could drop by another 30 to 50 cents a gallon. That would be welcome news for people like Tracy Ayer. Uh, She spent much of the last two years working from home, but now she's back in the office at a Kansas City law firm several days a week. And that 50-mile round-trip commute is still pretty costly. It's still pretty expensive. I'm trying not to do as much driving as maybe I was doing before. You know, it's during the pandemic, my husband and I would just get in the car and just go for a drive just to get out of the house. We don't do that as much anymore just because, you know, that that seemed like a luxury expense now. (laughs) 
Now, along with gasoline, the price of some other commodities has also started to drop, including building materials, corn, wheat. Uh, In many cases, these price cuts reflect fear that the global economy is headed for a recession, and certainly nobody wants to see that, but it could also spell some relief from our very high inflation. NPR's Scott Horsley, thank you. You're welcome. Tens of thousands of bright green handkerchiefs flooded the streets of Latin American cities over the last few years. This green wave is the mass movement to expand reproductive rights in the region. And it's a movement that is working. The region has historically had restrictive abortion laws, but in the last two years, Mexico, Argentina, and Colombia have decriminalized or fully legalized abortion. Other neighboring countries, like Chile, could be next. Now, with federal abortion protections in the U.S. gone, reproductive rights advocates in the U.S. may be looking to their counterparts in Latin America for inspiration and strategy. Maria Antonieta Alcalde is the director of IPAS in Central America and Mexico. It's an organization that promotes safe and legal abortion access around the world. She joins us now from Mexico City. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Thank you very much, Elsa. It's a pleasure being here. Well, you know, as we mentioned, many countries in Latin America had restrictive abortion laws on their books for decades, including complete bans in some places. What do you think is working in the Latin American reproductive rights movement now? I think that one of the lessons uh, that we can share with the American movement is the importance to have room for the different expression. The green movement is a very inclusive movement uh, because you don't have to be part of a political party. You don't have to be part of a specific organization. You don't have to donate. Uh, You just have to be out there, wear your green scarf, and to help women uh, to have access to information about safe and legal abortion. And that's so interesting. The movement doesn't feel partisan. It's not. It's not, of course. I mean, like, a lot of political parties are trying to get closer to the movement, but it's not related with a political party. It's not even related with a specific brand or organization. I know that you have been doing this work for a long, long time now. What has it felt like for you personally to be there now and now only recently watching this massive shift? For me, it's really exciting living these times in Latin America because we are really harvesting like the work that we had put in the movement. Different from what we used to see in the past, now due to abortion with pills, Mm -hmm. uh, women can have access even within context of illegality. So it's, it's exciting to be able to give some hope to people that cannot wait for the laws to change, but that they need support right now. And the movement in the U.S. that for many years was the aspiration for many of us, and now to be able to see that what we have built in Latin America could also be useful for our sisters in the U.S. is, it is inspiring. Well, now much of the U.S. is returning to restrictive abortion access, but In Mexico, where you live, for example, have you seen that greater access to abortions has translated into more abortions happening? Not at all. In the case of Mexico and in most countries in Latin America that is different from the U.S., that we have a public health system. So in the case of Mexico City, uh, women can have access to abortion for free. 
because the government has the obligation to provide health care to, to, to everyone, not only to the citizens. And what we have learned is that the decriminalization of abortion actually reduced the need of women to have access. Because when mm. you legalize abortion, you can provide comprehensive services to women. Women do not only receive a very good quality of service to interrupt the pregnancy, but they also receive, for example, counseling in the case that they are facing a situation of a violence. So most of the women that come to a clinic for an abortion leave that clinic not only with the abortion but also with a contraceptive like an implant if their partners come with them they even offer vasectomies for their partners hmm. so uh, when when you are able to provide a legal abortion in the public health system you address the needs of the most vulnerable people and you're able to offer comprehensive services that will prevent them to come back one or two more times with an unwanted pregnancy. So actually legalizing abortion reduce the need uh, for an abortion. And that's what that's we have so seen very clearly. People who on either side of the abortion debate in the U.S. have told us that they have seen the overturning of Roe v. Wade coming for years and years. Where do you think the abortion rights movement failed in the U.S.? Oh, I, mean, I think that, the, I mean, there is, of course, it's not only a fail of the movement, there are other elements to consider. But I think maybe the first part is that the U.S. movement, it's very isolated. I mean, if you think about the 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 abortion movement or the sexual reproductive health and rights movement in in the world, we're very united. I mean, like the green wave is it's an expression of that. It's not the Argentinian movement or the Colombia or the Chilean. It's like it's all together. While the U.S. movement has always been very isolated, hmm. maybe the other element is like this is a movement that it it, it is a big part of their strength is based on big organizations. You have very big national organizations that of course play a very significant role, but but in a way they control the narrative and they control the movement. You're talking about here in the US. Here in the in the US. And I'm yes. talking of course about Planned Parenthood right. or like a, even the Center of Reproductive Rights. And in that way you become a very easy target. So it's not about the access to abortion, it's about Planned Parenthood. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that that had hindered the organization because there are other ways, other expressions uh, of the movement that hasn't been able, including expressions from the Latina movement, including expressions from the African-American movement that hasn't been that uh, strong within this model of big organizations uh, being the movement. Maria Antonieta Alcalde of IPAS, an organization that focuses on safe and legal access to abortions. Thank you very much for your time again. It is my pleasure to be here. Thank you, Elsa. Nuclear energy is having something of a comeback. After falling out of favor due to high cost and safety concerns, it's getting a second look as a climate-friendly energy source. The Biden administration promises it will be included in their climate agenda, but its detractors say it is risky. On tomorrow's All Things Considered, we explore whether nuclear power can overcome its baggage to become part of a greener future. 
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Ralph Reed, one of the leaders of the conservative evangelical movement for 30 years on why he sees a political red wave coming in the November elections. That story is coming up. An upswing for all the main indices on Wall Street today. The Dow picked up a quarter of a percent, 70 points, to close at 31,038. S&P rose for a third straight day, up 0.36 percent to end the day at 3845. NASDAQ gained just about the same, 0.35%, to close at 11,362. Details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. It's now 5.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for helping make them the nation's number one children's hospital nine years in a row. BostonChildrens.org slash answers. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, sponsor of Growing Healthy Futures with Greater Boston Food Bank. MathWorks.com slash GBFB. Coming to City Space on Saturday, July 16th, the Crossword Show, a live comedy event hosted by actor, TV writer, and comedian Zach Sherwin. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. Our lovely July day has uh, is leading to a comfortable night tonight. Partly cloudy skies overnight, breezy, about 65 for a low. Tomorrow should be partly sunny, a little less mild, about 79 degrees tops. 79 degrees now in the Boston area. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from CrowdStrike. Their cloud-native platform is designed to protect businesses from cyber attacks, ransomware, and data theft. At home, at the office, and everywhere in between. More at crowdstrike.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of z Night Pain, a nighttime pain reliever designed to help people fall asleep fast. It contains diphenhydramine and acetaminophen. More at ZZZQuill.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. Between the Supreme Court handing down decisions about against abortion rights and in favor of public prayer and rising stars on the right taking on the progressive politics of corporate America, social conservatives are having a big moment. NPR political correspondent Susan Davis recently sat down for a lunch with one of the leaders of the conservative evangelical movement to talk about where it's heading. Ralph Reed runs the Faith and Freedom Coalition. He's been active in Republican politics for 30 years. At a recent coalition gathering of thousands of religious conservative activists, one thing immediately stood out. This crowd isn't as white as it used to be. That's not an accident, says Reed. Our goal is over the coming decades to build a genuinely multiracial, multi-ethnic faith-based movement. Reed's message resonated with the black pastors I spoke to at the conference, like W.J. Coleman from Louisville, Mississippi. But many realize that they are conservative, but the word conservative and Republican have been made an evil word. But if you take that out of the equation, many more minorities will find themselves being that. Reed runs the Faith and Freedom Coalition now, but he's best known for starting the Christian Coalition back in the early 90s. He stepped out of the national spotlight for a while after he was caught up in the Washington scandal surrounding former lobbyist Jack Abramoff in the mid-2000s, but Reed was never charged with any wrongdoing. He found his way back to national prominence after he embraced Donald Trump in 2016 and helped turn out the white evangelical vote in his favor. 
Reed's stock is once again on the rise as Republicans see a red wave coming this November. We are focused like a laser beam at turning out the largest uh, faith-based evangelical and pro-life vote that we've seen in the midterm elections in our lifetimes. When Reed started the Christian Coalition, the outfit built up an 8 million voter database. Today, Reed's database numbers at 46 million. We will knock on more doors, touch more voters at the door, not only than we have ever touched in the history of the organization, but then I, I believe have been touched by any outside organization on the center-right in my career. If Reed sounds optimistic, he has reason to be. His organization has become a touchstone for any Republican candidate seriously considering a run for president. And the decisive sway of evangelical voters in primary politics has ambitious politicians making moves to win them over. One of them, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, went after the Walt Disney Corporation's special tax status after the company opposed a new state law prohibiting educators from discussing sexual orientation or gender identity with children before the fourth grade. Reed says that was a watershed moment for the conservative movement. And for DeSantis to do it and not only pay no political price, but I would argue become a political beneficiary and then for Disney to basically go radio silent and just take it was unbelievable. Disney did not respond to a request for comment. Reed said the Disney fight has emboldened activists to more aggressively take on institutions that have been their traditional political allies. If the Disneys and the Deltas and the Coca-Colas of the world are not careful, they're going to take the best friend they've ever had when it came to economic policy and turn them into adversaries. Reed also sees these culture war issues involving sex and gender and parental rights as a new avenue for the Republican Party to make inroads with Black and Latino voters who attend church at higher rates than white voters do, according to the Pew Research Center. They really, really play and resonate powerfully in these minority communities, not among everybody, but uh, it would be a minimum of 25 percent in the Black community and it would probably be a minimum of 30% in the Hispanic community. I spoke to Reed days before the Supreme Court handed down the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, though the outcome was expected after the draft opinion was leaked. Perhaps surprisingly, he did not think that abortion would be a major issue come November. He said historically, only about 5% of voters list abortion as their number one reason for voting. I think this election is going to be about what we all know it's going to be about, which is the economy, inflation, and high prices. The impact come November could be a Republican-controlled Congress emboldened to advance a socially conservative agenda. Susan Davis, NPR News, Washington. Miss Marvel, the superhero, has landed in cinemas in Pakistan. The title character is a teenager who lives in New Jersey with her Pakistani immigrant parents. NPR's Dia Hadid went to the movies in Islamabad to see what audiences there think of their homegrown superhero. Miss Marvel is a first. Kamala Khan is the first Muslim superhero to have her own comic, the first to have her own series. Behind the camera, some of the directors were from South Asia, including Shermin Obaid Shinoy, who directed episodes four and five. So for the first time, not only do you have someone on screen who is brown, Muslim, but you also have the people behind the camera who are brown and Muslim. She says Miss Marvel is a celebration of all things South Asian. The textiles we wear, the food we eat, the music we listen to. <laughs> 
So to celebrate Kamala Khan's Pakistani heritage, the company released episodes one to six in cinemas here. There was a problem, though. The premiere was delayed. The censor board took weeks to check if there was anything insulting to Islam. And finally, Miss Marvel arrived unannounced at our local cinema days before a big Pakistani holiday. So only a handful of fans turned up. It's not really the brown girls from Jersey City who save the world. Miss Marvel is a typical Muslim teenager from the Burbs. Her brother teases her before a big driving test. And remember to say Bismillah before you start the car. You're going to need all the help you can get. Kamala Khan pleads with her mother to go to Avengers Con. And even though it will be a distraction from your studies and there will be a lot of haram going on there, Kamala, we have decided to let you go. Really? 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 <laughs> yes, but there are special conditions. Kamala has to take her father. Her mother even makes them matching Incredible Hulk uniforms. See, Kamala, big Hulk and little Hulk. Bada Hulk or Choti Hulk. Huh? So cute you all will look. Huh? Oh, my God. Instead, Kamala sneaks out to Avengers Con, and there she discovers her own superpowers. What does it feel like? Cosmic. Episode one ends, and 17-year-old Hassan Bodhi says, Miss Marvel is incredible. Because it's finally us, like Pakistani kids, getting recognition to show and share our, our identity with other people. It's like really beautiful for us. Because we didn't grow up with many brown superheroes or Pakistani superheroes at all. What was your favorite character? My favorite character was Kamala herself. Her journey through herself, uh, like finding herself and her self-identity is like really beautiful to me. As we walk out, we meet another man who was watching this Marvel. He's in a hurry. I mean, did you like the movie? Yeah, a little bit. But we see, one not I came in the middle of the movie and I, I was not focused. Okay, I mean, did you enjoy sort of like how Pakistani it was? You know, the Bismillah, the, the Quran. You know, the way... Absolutely. It was a great experience for all of us to see such a marvelous things. Maybe for some Pakistani teenagers, Miss Marvel shows that even a superhero has to navigate her way through faith, family and growing up. For others, there's a joy in seeing Islam featured in a big Hollywood production through a good guy or a teenage girl. Dia Hadid, NPR News, Islamabad. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Still to come on all things considered climate science and extreme weather. In the forecast, our nice afternoon leads to a breezy evening. Some clouds around overnight tonight. Temperatures in the mid-60s. Tomorrow, clouds and sunshine mix it up, rising to the upper 70s. For Friday, clouds and showers still just below 80 degrees. Then, right now anyway, it looks like a sunny weekend is on the way with high temperatures in the upper 70s. 79 degrees now. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Tanglewood, presenting the Boston Symphony Orchestra, Boston Pops, guest artists, and more in the Berkshire Hills this summer. Details and performance schedule at tanglewood.org. La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, modern Latin American fare for those seeking flavorful, healthy choices. Catering your office lunch in greater Boston, lacuchara.com. And Cityside Subaru in Belmont with the all-new 2022 Subaru Outback Wilderness Edition. It's summer of love at citysidesubaru.com. 
What is the wisest approach for the relatives and supporters of a person who has been detained, arrested, or kidnapped overseas? What is the smart way for them to respond? Is it to speak up, make noise, and raise the profile of the situation? Or is it to work quietly with the United States government? I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Speaking in Cleveland, Ohio this afternoon, President Biden says the Justice Department will take action if necessary in the Akron police shooting last week of Jalen Walker. The 25-year-old black man was shot at least 60 times by police as he fled after a traffic stop. If the evidence reveals potential violations of federal criminal statutes, the Justice Department will take the appropriate action. And I just want you to know what's going to happen. After being chased by police for several minutes, Walker jumped out of his vehicle and ran. Police say they believed he had shot at them. An unloaded gun was later recovered from Walker's car. That shooting in Akron marks the latest in a series of police killings of black men that raises questions about appropriate use of force. In Wisconsin, a sexual trafficking victim who's accused of killing a man who allegedly trafficked her can now argue at trial that her action was justified after a state Supreme Court today uh, ruled in favor. From member station WUWM, Chuck Quirmbach reports. Crystal Kaiser was 17 when authorities say she killed what she said was her sexual abuser. The state Supreme Court has ruled that Kaiser can use in her self-defense argument a Wisconsin law that absolves victims of any offense committed as a direct result of being trafficked. Ian Henderson of the Wisconsin Coalition Against Sexual Assault helped file a legal brief supporting Kaiser and says he hopes the ruling also helps other trafficking victims facing charges. If that crime is a result of the trafficking, that they will have the protections that the law affords them, right? Prosecutors have argued Kaiser's killing of the man was premeditated. For NPR News, I'm Chuck Quirmbach in Milwaukee. Stocks finished slightly higher on Wall Street today. The Dow gained 69 points, up about two-tenths of a percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts' highest court is considering whether the state can expand mail-in voting. Today, the Supreme Judicial Court heard arguments in a challenge to a new state law that allows mail-in voting for any reason. The state's Republican Party argued the state's constitution allows absentee voting only for specific reasons. The Secretary of State's office says mail-in voting is exempt from constitutional limitations. The court's expected to rule soon because a primary is set for September. A Boston city councilor is questioning the Boston police response to last weekend's white nationalist march through the city's downtown. Members of the group Patriot Front allegedly assaulted a black man during the march. On WBR's Radio Boston today, City Councilor Ricardo Arroyo says once police got word the march was in progress, they should have been flanking the group. There's a very clear photo on the Boston Herald from an official Boston Herald photographer about three feet away from this assault. Why is the Boston Herald photographer closer to this column marching through the city than the Boston Police Department. WBUR has not received a response from the Boston Police Department addressing Arroyo's concerns. The city of Boston will spend $20 million to increase access to early education programs. Mayor Michelle Wu says the money will help expand the number of classroom seats open to three- and four-year-olds this fall. 
The mayor says the spending will also raise salaries for staff at community-based child care centers to bring their pay in line with what the staff earn at city-run pre-kindergarten programs. Massachusetts Taxpayers Foundation is predicting a historic budget surplus for the state for the fiscal year 2022 that ended last week. When the final numbers are tallied, the Public Policy Foundation thinks the state will have a surplus of $3.6 billion. That would be more than twice the surplus from fiscal year 21. The Taxpayers Foundation says the state also has an additional $2.3 billion in unspent federal pandemic relief money. And the National Hockey League has its first black general manager, and he's from Massachusetts. Holliston native Mike Greer has been hired by the San Jose Sharks. At his introductory news conference yesterday, he said he realizes the responsibility that comes along with being the first black GM in the National Hockey League. You know, my job is to do the best I can for the San Jose Sharks organization, and if I do that, hopefully it opens the door to, to give other opportunities to other minorities to, to get in front of office positions and, and maybe lead a team down the road as well. Greer played college hockey at Boston University, then played 14 years in the NHL. His brother Chris is general manager of football's Miami Dolphins. Their father, Bobby Greer, is a former executive with the New England Patriots. In the forecast, pretty comfortable overnight tonight. Partly cloudy, about 65 for a low. For tomorrow, partly sunny. Highs about 79 degrees tops. Then Friday, clouding up the chance of an afternoon shower. Still about 79 degrees, which is where it is right now in the Boston area. 79 at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments is a fiduciary, which means they always put clients' interests first. Fisher Investments, clearly different money management. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. And from USPS, serving every address in the country, more than 160 million nationwide. USPS, delivering for America. Learn more at usps.com slash delivering. And from the Lemelson Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson is insisting he will not resign after another crisis has rocked his leadership. At today's weekly Prime Minister's Questions session in Parliament, opposition members shouted, bye-bye, Boris. Johnson, though, remained defiant. There's a very simple reason why they want me out. And that is, and that is, and that is because... Because they know, Mr. Speaker, uh, that if they, that otherwise uh, we are going to get on and deliver our mandate and win another general election, and that is the reality, Mr. Speaker. But even for many within his Conservative Party, the question is not will Johnson leave; it is when. Villa Marx is in London for NPR and joins us now with the latest. Welcome. Thanks so much, Elsa. So this time yesterday, Willem, we were just talking about two resignations from Johnson's cabinet. What has happened today? Catch us up. Well, yeah, we, we had dozens more members of his government resign, including a further 15 ministers. It goes without saying this is pretty unprecedented. The last time a mass government resignation on this scale happened, I think, was back in 1932. To remind folks how we got here, Johnson's seen support among members of his own Conservative Party slowly ebb away over the course of this year, largely due to crises of his own making, particularly the fact that Downing Street, his office and official residence, played host to a large number of illegal parties during COVID-19-related restrictions. That prevented ordinary people at the time from gathering socially. 
he and his team handled the fallout from investigations into those parties really badly, and the Conservatives subsequently lost two constituency elections. That was a sign that ordinary British voters were perhaps turning against Johnson and his party. So after that, last month, the Prime Minister faced a vote of no confidence from his fellow Conservative members of Parliament. He won it, but far from convincingly. And so when another scandal arose last week, focused on alleged sexual assaults by a Conservative legislator that Johnson had promoted to a senior government role, questions were once again raised about his judgment as leader. And when Johnson then failed to immediately disclose that he had known about previous complaints against that same legislator, those two resignations you mentioned yesterday from among his most senior cabinet members, they took place. Well, I mean, we just heard Prime Minister Johnson say he will fight on. At this point, can he? What do you think? Well, in a word, yes, at least in terms of the mechanics and at least for a few more days. He, he's repeatedly said he will not voluntarily resign. And having won his party a very substantial majority in a general election just back in 2019, Johnson's argument today seems to be that he retains a powerful mandate from the British public, even though a series of polls in recent weeks have suggested the majority of people in the UK would like to see him gone. On top of all the resignations, he's also just sacked one of his other very senior ministers, a man considered by many to be one of the chief intellectual architects of the Johnson government agenda. He's also already appointed replacements for the first two senior cabinet members to resign yesterday, his finance and health ministers. And members of the Conservative Party, this is where it gets complicated, in the House of Commons, Britain's elected lower chamber in Parliament cannot currently, under their own rules, vote to remove him as head of their party in Parliament for another 11 months, precisely because he survived a no-confidence vote last month. Some of them now seem to be trying to change those rules as early as next week. That would allow for a new confidence vote, and if he's lost as much support as today's resignation seems to suggest, it's uh -huh. unlikely he'd survive a second time. Ooh All right, that is reporter Willem Marks in London. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Elsa. A derecho barreled through South Dakota yesterday. A heat wave is lingering over Texas, and wildfires are burning across Alaska. When weather gets extreme, a lot of people wonder and worry about climate change. Michael Weiner is a senior scientist at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. People want to know, you know, has climate change affected me? Did climate change flood my house? Did climate change make it so hot that my power went out? Those kinds of questions. And those are good questions. For a long time, scientists did not really have answers. But as NPR's Rebecca Hersher reports, that's changing. This is cutting-edge science, and here's how it works. After a flood or a heat wave or some other disaster, scientists sit down and compare what actually happened, like how hot it got or how much rain fell, to what would have happened if there was no global warming. And to do that, they use really powerful computers, excellent weather satellites, and fancy new math. And it's easier to do for some types of weather. Wayner was one of the OG scientists working on this problem. Well, heat waves were where we started. Because heat waves are relatively simple. There aren't a lot of variables. Temperature, maybe humidity and wind if you're getting fancy. And since you're comparing the present to the past before global warming took off, you need good historical records, which there are for temperature, going back to the 1800s all of which allows scientists to say some pretty bullish things about how climate change is making heat waves worse. Any heat wave that occurs from now on, the temperature has been increased by climate change. They can even tell you how much hotter it is. For a garden variety heat waves, like the hottest day of the year or the hottest day you know, in every 10 years, in the United States, 
climate change has increased that heat wave temperature by between three and five degrees Fahrenheit. Three to five degrees is a big difference if you really think about it. 85 compared to 90, 95 compared to 100. And actually, studies have found that the higher you get, the more deadly each additional degree actually is. Last summer, this type of science had its biggest moment yet. There was an extreme heat wave in the Pacific Northwest, 115 degrees in Oregon and Washington, 120 in parts of Canada. And when scientists analyzed it, they found something shocking. It was virtually impossible without climate change. Another way to say that, climate change caused the heat wave. Now, that's new territory for most people. The idea that the weather we're living through isn't just worse because of global warming, it is only possible because of global warming. But other types of disasters are harder to tie to climate change, like wildfires. They're some of the hardest. Wildfires are a really great example of how we cannot say if climate change caused a particular wildfire event. Megan Kirkmeyer-Young is a researcher at Environment and Climate Change Canada. And she says it's clear that climate change is making hot, dry conditions more common, which obviously makes wildfires more likely to take off. But then there are all the human influences. For example, a person can start a wildfire, and firefighters can keep it from spreading. Any fire has got so many factors going on, and only some of them are really closely related to the climate. That makes it impossible for scientists to study a specific fire and say, this was X amount worse because of climate change. Other weather disasters are somewhere in between, like hurricanes. They're more complicated than heat waves, but less tricky than wildfires. So scientists have made some progress by focusing on individual parts of the storm, like how much rain fell or how intense the wind was. There's a lot of pressure for this research to move quickly, says Weiner. There is a clear demand for this from the public. In the future, concrete information about the effects of climate change could just be part of the normal weather forecast. In fact, the Weather Service for the European Union is already trying it out for heat waves and floods. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Last year, news broke that the city of Philadelphia and local universities had mishandled the remains of people who were killed during the 1985 MOVE bombing in Philadelphia. An investigation into why that happened has reopened old wounds, and it leaves many questions unanswered. From member station WHYY, Kenny Cooper reports. It has been 37 years since the Philadelphia Police Department dropped a bomb on a home where the Black Liberation Group MOVE was based. The Philadelphia Fire Department let the resulting blaze engulf 61 homes. 11 people, including five children, died. Lionel Dotson's two sisters, Katricia and Zanetta, were among them. For some reason, the city won't let me put it to an end. The MOVE bombing devastated Dotson's family. He has since moved away from Philadelphia to North Carolina. Last year, the University of Pennsylvania and Princeton University were reported to have withheld and studied the remains of child victims without the family's knowledge. The city's medical examiner's office was also in hot water for the mishandling of a separate box of move remains. 
Philadelphia's top health official resigned, and the city tapped two outside law firms to lead an investigation into what went wrong. That independent report arrived in June. Though it had a huge scope, there were limitations. Several key witnesses refused to cooperate. Dotson says it didn't offer any revelations. I feel like even in their death, there's no peace. For example, the report failed to explain why the medical examiner's office chose not to release the remains to family members. But it did find the initial 1985 investigation into the scene to be grossly inadequate and biased. Here, Bradford Gray served as one of the outside attorneys leading the investigation. I think that this is so important to understand the role that each governmental agency played in either covering up or not really reporting truthfully and ethically what happened so that the family still cannot get the justice that they feel that they were denied. One of the main report recommendations was that the city change the manners of death to homicides. We do agree with that recommendation. These are not folks who died by accident. These are people who were killed. Philadelphia Health Commissioner Dr. Cheryl Bedigal says the report is a roadmap forward. But she cautioned that some recommendations, like having forensic investigators on site at every homicide, might be out of reach due to staffing limitations. She says what is most important at this time is an apology. Our medical examiner's office should never have run that way. I really want to apologize to the families of the victims because this is incredibly traumatic for them. In a statement announcing the report, Mayor Jim Kenney said that he is hopeful that it provides closure to family members. Bakari Sellers is one of the lawyers representing Dotson's family. He says the disregard for the remains of black life made his skin crawl and motivated him to get involved. Now, he's exploring who might be liable. Not only were these individuals targeted, of course, in the move bombing, but their remains were treated with such disrespect by all involved. While the city has begun having conversations with the families about returning the remaining human body parts once they are all identified, Dotson says 37 years is long enough. His sisters need to be laid to rest. Tell the city to just fess up and release my sister remains already. That hurts. I want my sisters. I'm sorry, but it hurts. His attorneys believe that egregious civil rights violations have been committed. For NPR News, I'm Kenny Cooper. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, the music that's hot once again, thanks to a new generation of musicians. And this evening on Marketplace, your credit score is mostly generated by algorithms. But even without human intervention, the calculation can still be biased. Many times, credit scores are built on history of all kinds of other aggregate data. So often your score is relative to other people's scores. And this is where we start to get in trouble. Biased in the credit score coding on Marketplace, which starts at 6.30. Major League debut at Fenway Park tonight as 23-year-old Brian Bayo takes the mound for the Red Sox in their third and final game against the Tampa Bay Rays. Corey Kluber pitches for the Rays. Bayo's first pitch is at 7.10. Some fair weather clouds around tonight should be windy, lows about 65. Tomorrow, partly sunny, pretty nice, 79 at the warmest. It's now 79 degrees in Boston at 549. 
Ethiopia is in the midst of escalating chaos. Its Nobel Peace Prize winning leader is fighting on all fronts. Now, one of the country's most influential artists has issued a direct musical challenge. We'll take you inside Teddy Afro's music of protest tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 5 on 90.9 WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. In 2019, the rising rap star Nipsey Hussle was shot and killed outside his own clothing store in South L.A. A jury has found the shooter, a man named Eric R. Holder, guilty of first-degree murder. NPR's Andrew Limbong has more. During the trial, Eric R. Holder's defense argued that it was a crime of passion. The two men were part of the same gang, the Rolling Sixties, and when Nipsey Hussle called Holder a snitch, it enraged him enough that Holder left and returned with a gun nine minutes later and shot and killed the rapper. The jury wasn't convinced and found Holder, who is no relation to the former U.S. Attorney General, guilty of first-degree murder, putting a capstone on one of the most high-profile murder cases in recent hip-hop. Nipsey Hussle was a revered figure in his scene. In a 2018 interview with Hot 97, he talked about how he and his era of rap peers were trying to change how gang culture intersected with music. We saw what happened with Death Row. We saw what happened when gangbanging spills into music. You get, you know, the perfect storm for, for destruction. Holder will be sentenced in September. He could face life in prison. Andrew Limbong, NPR News. Colombia's Andean music is going through a renaissance. Played on three string instruments, this music was the country's soundtrack from the turn of the 20th century to the 1940s. And it's becoming more popular again thanks to a new generation of musicians. Beto Arcos brings us the story of one of these groups, Bogotá's Itinerante. On a recent late afternoon on the 13th floor of a high-rise apartment building near downtown Bogotá, the three members of Itinerante are replicating a ritual they started seven years ago. After tuning their instruments, they play a classic piece of Colombian Andean music from the early 1900s called Juguete or Toy. Colombian Andean music is a confluence of many traditional rhythms, such as bambuco, pasillo, and torbellino. It's played across Colombia's Andean mountain range from the north to the south of the country. At the center of this music are three string instruments, two of them native to Colombia. The tiple, a 12-steel string guitar-like instrument arranged in four courses of three strings, the bandola, a 12-string mandolin-like instrument, and the six-string Spanish guitar. The members of Itinerante are 38-year-old guitarist Sebastián Martínez, 24-year-old bandola player Mateo Patiño and 33-year-old tiple player Diego Baamón. Mateo Patiño says he started playing guitar, then tiple, but the melodic quality of the bandola 
captivated him the most. It's the brightness, the particular color that's so unique. Even though the mandola belongs to the family of instruments played with a plectrum, I think it's very different from all of them. I really like the mandola's presence and its singular sound. Guitarist Sebastián Martínez grew up listening to rock bands such as Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple, and Queen. The music he composes for the trio has those influences, including the piece he wrote for their debut album. And of course, all of the elements of the traditional style called bambuco. You can notice the blue scales I use in it. It was born during a night of insomnia. That's why it's called noctambulo, night owl. player Diego Bahamón says he met Patiño when he was 16 at the renowned Colombian Andean music festival Mono Núñez in 2014 and introduced him to Martínez the following year. And they met in the first rehearsal. So that was the first rehearsal of Itinerante. It was in 2015, so it's been more than seven years so far. In those seven years, they've gained the respect of some of the top musicians of the style. For their debut album, Itinerante counted on the mentorship and guidance of Fernando León. Pagamón says León is one of the most respected figures of Colombian Andean music. He has a lot of information of this music because he has been studying this music, playing this music since almost more than 50 years, I would say. He helped us in the curation of the, of the repertoire and he made some arrangements for this album. Leon says it's an invigorating time for Colombian Andean music. There's an exciting renaissance that's encouraging musicians to play the styles of the Andean region, such as bambuco, pasillo, guabina, torbellino, and the fusion of all these genres and most importantly, with young musicians. Paulo Sánchez is the director of Bogotá's Teatro Col Subsidio, one of the most important venues in Colombia that presents this music year-round. He says in the 1990s, during one of the best periods of Colombian Andean music, there were some remarkable music trios. But then there was a lull. Y creo que con itinerante se rompe un poco. I think with uh, itinerante, there's a breakthrough. And we begin to see the emergence of trios again. Itinerante is the trio of the moment, of today. They're bringing back the trio format to a superlative level.
Amon says he speaks for the other musicians in the group. They were meant to play Colombian Andean music. Everything was planned to, for me to be a, a tiple player and play this music, of course. This music is the one that make, makes my, my blood connect with everything that I have. Itinerante just finished a tour of Western Colombia and is currently preparing for a series of concerts at the Chamber Music Hall in Bogotá. For NPR News, I'm Beto Arcos. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from iDrive, providing cloud backup, full system backup, and on-site iDrive appliance to protect PCs, Macs, and servers from data loss due to crashes and ransomware at iDrive.com NPR. And from Capital One, offering Capital One Shopping, a downloadable browser extension that searches various sites for shoppers. What's in your wallet? More at CapitalOneShopping.com. And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Had a lovely June day, uh, July day today. Comfortable night ahead tonight. Partly cloudy skies. Breezy, about 65 for a low. Tomorrow should be partly sunny, a little less mild, about 79 degrees tops. Then for Friday, should cloud up. Afternoon showers likely again around 79. It is shaping up to be a beautiful weekend on the way. Join Rebecca Shear, host of WBUR's children's podcast, Circle Around, on Saturday, July 9th at City Space to celebrate the launch of Circle Round's picture books. You can get tickets at wbur.org slash events. It's 559. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at wbur.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Prosecutors say the 21-year-old charged in the mass shooting in Highland Park, Illinois, has confessed to the crime. They say he used a Smith & Wesson MP15 semi-automatic. Illinois State Police approved the suspect's firearms ID a few years ago, even though months before that he had threatened to kill himself and his family. This is WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story ahead. Also, people in Akron, Ohio, remain outraged by the killing of Jalen Walker by police. Walker was a black motorist. Police shot him dozens of times. It seems like you wouldn't treat an animal that way. It was heartbreaking uh, seeing the way they, they did that. Coming up, Walker's high school wrestling coach remembers the young man that he knew. And we'll take a trek to the soaring fire watch towers in New York's Adirondack Mountains. It's 601 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden says the Justice Department is coordinating with state and local counterparts after the police shooting of Jalen Walker in Akron last week. 
NPR's Kerry Johnson reports Biden made the remarks before an audience in Ohio. The president says the FBI, the U.S. Attorney, and the Civil Rights Division are monitoring the situation in Akron. If the evidence reveals potential violations of federal criminal statutes, Biden says, the Justice Department will take appropriate action. The DOJ sent peacekeepers from its Community Relations Service to Akron earlier this week. Those staffers are working to reduce racial tensions and support peaceful protests. Officers shot Jalen Walker dozens of times as he fled his car after an attempted traffic stop. Police say they believed he had shot at them. Authorities found 60 gunshot wounds on his body. The officers are on paid administrative leave. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. Former White House counsel Pat Cipollone is the latest Trump-era West Wing insider to agree to testify before the House January 6th committee looking into the attack on the U.S. Capitol. Previous testimony, including from former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson, has described Cipollone's resistance to some of the Trump administration's schemes to overturn the 2020 election defeat, including pushing back against Trump going to Capitol Hill to join demonstrators. Cipollone was subpoenaed by the committee last week. An individual familiar with the matter who spoke on condition of anonymity says so Cipollone has agreed to appear for a private interview on Friday. Russian forces are now pounding towns in the Donetsk region after taking neighboring Luhansk. NPR's owner Beardsley reports Putin is aiming to conquer the entire Donbass. Katarzyna Nazist, a specialist on the Russian military at the Norwegian Institute for Defense Studies, says when Putin takes the Donbass, he'll try to present the bloody win as a victory to the Russian people. But he won't stop there. The objectives Putin has set, it is subjugating the whole Ukraine. Zisk says Ukraine is only a piece of the new puzzle Putin wants to put together. Russia wants to have a new uh, European security architecture, but also they have ambitions in the broader international order. Russia wants to be the superpower that controls countries like Ukraine and the Baltic nations. She says it's completely unacceptable to the West, but she does not believe Putin will stop until someone stops him. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Dnipro, Ukraine. A worsening situation regarding inflation, along with concerns about a lack of faith the Federal Reserve can make things better, in part helped prompt a three-quarters of a percent increase in the Fed funds rate last month. That's according to the minutes from the Fed's June meeting, in which policymakers ratcheted up short-term interest rates by the biggest amount since 1994. Wall Street still gained ground despite the Fed minutes. The Dow was up 69 points today. The Nasdaq closed up 39 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. The highest court in Massachusetts is considering arguments it heard today about a new state law that makes it easier to vote by mail. The state Republican Party says the law is unconstitutional and could lead to voter fraud. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports. The new law allows anyone to vote by mail for any reason. But the Mass GOP argues the state constitution only allows people to cast absentee ballots in certain circumstances. Michael Walsh, an attorney for the party, also said that early voting isn't constitutional, even though the state has allowed it for eight years. Decisions, no matter how wrong or how old or how bad, if they're bad, they deserve to be overturned. But Assistant Attorney General Adam Hornstein argued that the state constitution gives the legislature authority to expand access to voting. The legislature has broad power to deal with elections. The court is expected to issue a decision quickly so it doesn't affect voting for the September primary. 
For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is committing $20 million in city funds to expand free, high-quality child care in the city at facilities that include small family-run centers. As WBUR's Max Larkin reports, the mayor says all kinds of child care providers have a role to play to improve quality and accessibility. Boston already subsidizes free child care at some community-based centers that pay workers fairly and maintain high academic quality. Today's announcement means qualifying home-based centers will be eligible for similar support starting next year. And Wu says they have a unique role to play in a broader fight for access. Many families are accessing care through home-based centers because they're closer to home or, as you heard, have more flexible hours, multilingual options, direct cultural connections to communities. This latest expansion will push Boston to over 3,500 free pre-kindergarten seats, but the city still needs thousands more. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. A Massachusetts State Police trainee was hurt today when his firearm accidentally discharged. A spokesman for State Police says he was treated at a hospital in Worcester and then released. Maine is joining a growing list of states trying to protect people who may come to the state to seek an abortion. The governor signed an executive order that bans Maine's government agencies from taking part in another state's investigation into abortion care. The order is intended to protect health care providers in Maine who perform abortions there from being targeted by investigators in a state that bans the procedure. In the forecast, partly cloudy skies overnight tonight. Should be breezy, comfortable, about 65 for a low. Tomorrow, partly sunny, about 79 degrees for a high. Friday should cloud up. The chance of afternoon showers, again, right about 79 degrees. 77 in the Boston area at 607. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The accused gunman in Monday's deadly 4th of July mass shooting in Highland Park, Illinois, considered shooting even more people. It's one of the new details that we have learned after a bond hearing for the suspect today. Authorities say he also admitted to climbing a rooftop along the parade route, unleashing a hail of bullets. And then he said he traveled to Wisconsin after leaving at least seven people dead and injuring dozens of others at the parade. NPR's Cheryl Corley has been following the case and joins us now from Highland Park. Hi, Cheryl. Hi. Okay, so we are finding out new information every day about the suspect. What happened during the court proceedings today? Well, much of this hearing was uh, conducted remotely, but afterwards, Lake County State's uh, attorney, Eric Reinhardt, just made it very clear that the suspect confessed once he had been apprehended. Well, his statement was voluntary. He was uh, questioned in the Highland Park Police Department. He was read his Miranda warnings, offered attorneys, etc. He went into details about what he had done. He admitted to what he had done. And Reinhardt said they still don't have a motive. But we also learned more details about what happened after the shooting, that the gunman apparently traveled to Madison, Wisconsin, where he didn't plan another attack, but he apparently was seriously contemplating firing on a crowd of people at another Independence Day celebration that was being held there. Authorities say although he ditched the semi-automatic weapon that he used in Illinois, 
He had a similar rifle and about 60 more rounds of ammunition with him. He also ditched his phone in Wisconsin, which the FBI recovered. And Cheryl, as you've been spending time in Highland Park since Monday, how do things feel there today? Well, you know, people are still on edge here. You know, the FBI set up a family assistance center at the Highland Park High School. That'll be open for anyone who may have been affected in some way to come in for counseling. And a lot of people have been coming in with their children. Uh, There was one man who had a comfort dog outside and kids were running up to the dog before going inside. Mm -hmm. You know, there's still a heavy police presence in the downtown area. Yeah, I stopped in at the uh, Ravinia Farmer's Market. It's held here every Wednesday throughout the warmer months. Some people there knew others who had been killed or injured. Lynn Barron, a psychotherapist who has lived in Highland Park for years, says she had gone to the parade just about every year it's been held. She said today was her first day really being outside again. She had just put up her 4th of July decorations, and she just still found it hard to grasp that a shooting had occurred. And I had the thought, I don't know if I ever want to take this out again. It's always been my favorite holiday. And I I don't know if this is going to feel the same ever again. And many here were just floored that the shooting occurred in Highland Park since it has a ban on assault weapons. Yeah. I am curious about another detail. Has there been any indication that the Lake County State's attorney will press charges against the suspect's father since... He reportedly signed off on the suspect getting a gun before he was of age to do so on his own, right? Yeah. Well, the prosecutor said that hasn't been part of their investigation. It's typically handled by the state police, not by his office. But he left open the possibility. You know, Illinois has relatively strict gun laws, but the suspect did have five weapons legally, including the uh, high-powered rifle that was used in the shooting. And that was despite authorities being called to his home twice in 2019 for threats of violence and suicide. Uh, Police had gone to the home following a call from a family member who said that Cremo was threatening to kill everyone there. And authorities confiscated knives but said there was no sign at the time of any guns there. You know, at the farmer's market, there were several people who knew the father since he had run a convenience store in the area. And one woman, uh, Pauline Dessler, said she just really felt nauseated talking about the ordeal that the community has been through and that the father should be charged. Well, he has a lawyer, and I think he needs one. Let's put it that way. I do think there's responsibility on the part of somebody. If you knowingly put a gun in the hands of an unstable, suicidal person who has threatened your life and other lives, yes, that should be called, you should be culpable for that. And that's how they feel there. That is NPR's Cheryl Corley. Thank you, Cheryl. You're welcome. Tonight will be the first time this week without a curfew in downtown Akron, Ohio. The city had it in place in response to protests that erupted Sunday after police released video of the shooting death of 25-year-old Jalen Walker. Those protests, a sign of weariness, heartbreak, and outrage over the death of another black man at the hands of police. Police say Walker led them on a chase during a traffic stop on June 27th. They also say they found a gun in his car afterwards. And as we wait to learn more about the details surrounding his death, those who knew Walker are sharing more details about his life. That includes Robert Hubbard, a local high school wrestling coach who knew Jalen Walker for years. He joins us now. Hi, Robert. Hello. First of all, I just want to ask how you're doing. 
I, I've had a little time to come grips with it, so I'm doing better. But when I first heard, I was just shocked, just total shock. It made no sense to me knowing the gentleman I knew, the, the young uh, wrestler I knew since he was about eight or nine years old. It just made no sense. Hmm. Tell us about how you came to know him. What what was Jalen like? I met Jalen through his father brought him to a, a youth wrestling team we have. Uh, and eventually I got him in high school when he was a kid that I never had any problems from. I've had some kids that have tested me and, and pushed me. Jalen Walker was not one of those kids. Jalen was, you know, one of the sweetest kids, hardest workers. You know, one of those kids that, you know, I wish I had 10 of them on my team. That was the type of kid he was. Have you been in touch with Jalen's family since he died? I briefly spoke with his grandmother. I was more close with his father, and his father passed away about four years ago. But I did just happen to see his uncle in passing yesterday. When it's rough, we keep seeing each other under these type of circumstances. Have you seen the video that the Akron police released of the altercation in which Jalen was shot and killed? I watched maybe the first three camera views before I couldn't watch it anymore. The Jalen I know that's totally out of character. I don't know. I understand he, he was going through some stuff. He just lost his fiance in a terrible car accident. But still seeing that, it seemed like the way that ended I'm not a police expert on protocol or anything. You know, over these years, we've been talking about de-escalation. It seemed like there was no de-escalation. And once that car stopped, they were just on a hundred. As soon as they get out there, as the family say, it seems like you wouldn't treat an animal that way. It was, it, it was heartbreaking. I'm sorry. After watching it, it, it's, I mean, it was traumatizing. I wonder, given all of that, what would justice look like? You know, I hadn't I hadn't thought about that. What I want is for nobody else to have to lose a loved one the way Jalen's family lost him. We should note here that police have said that there was a shot fired. They have pointed out that they, they did recover a gun from Jalen's car. That's what they say. But I mean, that could have been anything. When they shot him down, he had no weapon on him. So why were they so fearful of him at that point? I don't know. You're a parent. You're a father of sons. I, I guess I'm curious, given this and some of the other high-profile instances that we have seen across this country, deaths of Black men at the hands of police, what would you hope an encounter could look like should yourself, should one of your sons end up in this situation? It is clear that you don't believe it should look like what you saw happen to Jalen. Definitely. I mean, I think... At worst, Jalen might have needed some help if they had handled that differently. If they had, uh, you know, subdued him and got him in, they probably could have got him some help. This is somebody that has not hurt anybody. But now he's, you know, he doesn't get to go to his raiment like the gentleman in, in, in Illinois. And if my kids are having some trouble like that, hopefully they can get him some help. When I think of my sons, like my, my son was home uh, this weekend from school. He just graduated from Ohio State in Columbus, and he, man, I had to give him an extra hug. Like, I'm so glad I have my son here. I, I can hug you, but if, if something like this happens, my wishes is that they can get him to help, not be judge and jury, but actually, you know, if he needs to be arrested, get him arrested. That would be my wishes, not to be afraid of him to the point that after I put 60 rounds at him, he still needs to be handcuffed. Robert Hubbard is a local high school wrestling coach who first met Jalen Walker when he was a young man and has known him for years. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you. 
It's a case that went cold some 45 million years ago, what killed a couple hundred ancient frogs. NPR's Ari Daniel brings us a mystery that at long last may have been solved. Central Germany was once a coastal subtropical swamp. With loads of creatures, loads of beasts running around. Including, says Daniel Falk, a paleontology PhD student at University College Cork, ancestral horses, giant crocodiles, huge snakes, and plenty of frogs and toads. But in the modern era, things look rather different. It's kind of like a fossil crime scene. The swamp had preserved a couple hundred fossilized frogs and toads. And the mysterious question is, like, why did all those animals die? Like, why did those frogs die? For a long time, scientists thought the swamp had dried out, which could have killed the frogs. But Falk wasn't so sure. I basically counted every single bone in every specimen. The bones were in good shape, so the animals were healthy. There was even fossilized poop in a couple of them, so they didn't starve. And there weren't any predator marks, so the frogs and toads weren't eaten. Process of elimination. And what was left, based on similar fossil deposits elsewhere, and knowing about modern-day frogs, was that, and here's where it gets a bit gruesome, the ancient animals drowned while mating especially the females. And they sink down in the water, and if the females can't make it up to the surface at some stage, they unfortunately drown. It's a theory Falk and his colleagues describe in a study published today in the journal Papers in Paleontology. If they're right, then it's not the males who revealed what happened. They're long gone. It's the females that have been preserved, whispering their story to us millions of years later. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. An upswing for all the main indices on Wall Street today. The Dow picked up a quarter of a percent, 70 points, to close at 31,038. S&P rose for a third straight day, up 0.36 percent. It ended the day at 3845. NASDAQ gained just about the same, 0.35 percent, to close at 11,362. A New York investment firm is planning to build two large warehouses in Revere next to Suffolk Downs. The industrial real estate division of Blackstone will knock down nearly 30 oil tanks at the site along Route 1A in order to build the warehouses that will house e-commerce merchandise. It bought the space for $150 million. Construction is expected to start in a little more than two years. And Kelly's Roast Beef is expanding outside Massachusetts. The 71-year-old company that was founded in Revere will open franchise locations later this year, two in Florida, one in Salem, New Hampshire, but they'll still represent Boston. They'll have signs that read Kelly's, Boston's legendary roast beef and seafood. It's 620. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet. Committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And Peabody Essex Museum. Patrick Kelly, Runway of Love, celebrates the genius of a self-taught designer who changed fashion forever. On view now. Tickets at PEM.org. Want to stay updated on upcoming WBUR events at City Space and throughout Greater Boston and get first crack at tickets? Sign up for the WBUR events newsletter. Just go to WBUR.org slash newsletters. This is WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. 
For more than a decade, Syrians have been finding refuge from their country's civil war in neighboring Turkey. The UN says more than 3.6 million refugees are sheltering there. But NPR's Peter Kenyon visited the Aegean port city of Izmir, which for years has had a sizable Syrian population. He found Turkish residents increasingly wish they would go home, leaving refugees to wonder and worry about their future. Izmir is an ancient port city long used to seeing travelers. But judging by recent comments, many residents no longer welcome refugees from Syria. In a tea house near Izmir's Kemeralta market area, 58-year-old Ibru, like many of the people who agreed to speak with the reporter, asked that her family name not be used. She's concerned about repercussions for speaking candidly about a sensitive subject. She says partly the problems are economic. Her friend's adult children are mostly unemployed, and she thinks it's because the Syrians will work for less money. Beyond that, she says the Syrians have completely overrun certain neighborhoods. She was shocked to see the changes when she visited one recently. They have moved into many sectors. I went there. I couldn't believe my eyes. That place is no longer Izmir. It's Syria now, with loads of their shops. In addition, another thing I oppose is allowing them to own places here. Ebrut repeats a stereotype common among the Turkish Izmir residents I met, that the Syrians have too many children, which she says is, quote, not good for our country. Government figures estimate there are nearly 150,000 Syrians in Izmir, and the 2.7 million people who live here think that's more than enough. 52-year-old Nihat sits at the entrance to a small shop. He started it for his 24-year-old son and minds it on weekends. He says his son couldn't get the job he really wanted because of competition from Syrians. We have a lot of unemployed young people. Their jobs have been taken by the people coming here. That's my observation. People from other countries finding jobs here? Why shouldn't our own citizens be earning their bread here? Turkish politicians have seized on the issue. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, seen by some as a hero for opening Turkey's doors when most of Europe and the U.S. were closing theirs, is now promising to send one million Syrians back to their homeland. Leaders of the main secular opposition party are also promising to send, quote, our Syrian brothers back to their country. One of the most outspoken politicians is Umit Ozdağ, who was twice expelled from Turkey's far-right MHP party. He founded the Zafir, or Victory Party, and uses the platform to rail against foreigners. The party released this animated video, which shows two of Azda's aides asking how he plans to get rid of the foreigners. Their eyes widen in amazement as they see the giant catapult standing behind him, as Azda says he will get rid of all of them. It's a depressing shift, says Izem Metenda, who works for a group providing assistance to Syrians. She says politicians are finding it easy to attract attention and supporters by attacking refugees. Umit Ozdağ is the ugliest example, but I observe this in all of the opposition parties. They cannot offer anything new. They pretend this is the main issue, as if they can solve it with their rhetoric. Syrians here say they can definitely feel the rising discontent with their continued presence. Outside a barbershop in Izmir, Mohammed Hamza says after nine years in Turkey, he doesn't see how he can go back to his home in Aleppo, which suffered heavy damage when government forces recaptured it. He says his daughters are excelling in Turkish schools, they love their teachers and don't even speak Arabic. Hamza says he has dozens of relatives already in Europe 
and doesn't think there's anything left for him in Syria. My house is gone. I had a workshop. That's also gone. What will I do in Syria? Translate for my daughters? We want to go to Europe. I wish that Europe can take us. But Europe, which gave billions to Turkey to keep the refugees from traveling further north, has shown no sign of opening its doors. In Turkey, people are proud of the role their country played, but after a decade, they feel they're competing with Syrians for jobs and benefits. And political leaders are stoking that tension as they prepare for elections next year. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Izmir, Turkey. Okay, let's take a few minutes to get outside because summer hiking season is here. And in York's Adirondack Mountains, some of the most popular views are from historic fire towers. NPR's Brian Mann made the trek to a tower on the summit of Hurricane Mountain, leaving early enough to see the sunrise. He sent us this audio postcard. It's just after 3 a.m. and pitch dark as I head into the woods on a gorgeous summer night my headlamp picking out the trail ahead of me. Seeing the sunrise from a mountain fire tower is one of my favorite things. The downside, you have to climb in darkness to make it happen. It's perfectly still as I hike, no birds, no wind. It's a little dreamlike. Then I reach a bog on the flank of the mountain. The frogs are already wide awake. I hike on using the headlamp to pick my way over roots and rocky streams. As you might expect, I don't see another soul. The mountain is all mine. People sometimes ask me if, you know, it's kind of spooky, especially when I'm hiking by myself through the night. And, you know, there is a, a little bit of a Blair Witchy sort of vibe. A little haunted. But soon the sky starts to glow, a lilac pre-dawn light that filters through the trees. It's enough I can shut off the headlamp. The light is also enough to bring out the birds. The next hour, I move higher through birdsong, like a wash of color. We live in a world where forest fires are a growing threat because of climate change. The fire towers here were built a century ago after overlogging led to wildfires that burned nearly a million acres. I break out onto open rock into the wind on the summit of Hurricane. Around me, the distant mountains are still dusk blue, topped in mist with deep shadows in the valleys. Up ahead, I see the tall metal spire with a little cabin on top. These structures aren't used anymore by fire spotters. There are better, more modern ways to spot and track blazes. But roughly half the Adirondack Towers are still standing, and most are open to hikers. I've climbed to the top of the fire tower, and you can hear the wind just crackling around me. It's fierce up here. Fierce but warm. A summer wind rich with smells of pine and dusty rock. Looking from the tower window, the eastern sky glows brighter. And just after 5 a.m., the sun pops cherry red on the horizon. The last darkness washes away as the mountains and forest are colored with rose light. Brian Mann. NPR News in New York's Adirondack Mountains.
COVID shots are rolling out for very young kids, six months to five years old. But lots of people still have questions. So we put some to a pediatrician and a health reporter, like does the manufacturer matter? And if a child has already had COVID, when is the best time to get the vaccine to maximize its efficacy? To hear those answers and more on what to expect for the under five set, listen to NPR's daily news podcast, Consider This. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Game three for the Red Sox and Tampa Bay Rays tonight at Fenway Park. The Sox Brian Bale makes his pitching debut for the majors. National Hockey League has released the Boston Bruins 22-23 schedule. The Bees will open the season on the road Wednesday, October 12th against the Washington Capitals. Their first home game will be Saturday, October 15th against the Arizona Coyotes. Bruins will also play in this year's NHL Winter Classic when they host the Pittsburgh Penguins at Fenway Park on January 2nd. Tickets go on, sa- on, sa- on sale for the season tomorrow afternoon. It's 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com and Building Restoration Services, diagnosing and repairing building envelope and water intrusion problems. Consultation scheduling at brsboston.com.